Good, good, good. Survive the night and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 74, and my name is Jakob. And my name is Randy. And today, Nicolo's not with us today because he's dropped out on, uh, at the last minute. He, uh, poor, poor lad, has, uh, has some, kind of an, uh, some kind of an ailment going on. So, you know, hopefully he's going to make it for no, tomorrow's <laughs> recording of Twin Peaks bonus Patreon episode that we're going to drop. Uh, that should be dropping, should have dropped, sorry, two days from where you're when you're listening to this. But today we're also joined by a special guest. Uh, we have Jackson Boren in the house to, together with us to talk about movies. How are you, uh, Jackson? How are you doing? I am very, I'm very good, Jacob. And I, I feel like I'm the Stephen Dorff of this group joining you at the last minute into this <laughs> journey into the the night. <laughs> Yeah, and then like this, this could have been perfect if we had just four people in here, and then that ah, you can't have everything. <laughs> yeah. So who's Cuba Gooding Jr. in this in this crowd? Hmm. <laughs> we will Not figure me. that out as we go along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll figure. The, someone who's who, who's the, who's the tri- trigger happy person in the room. <laughs> anyway, so as you, as you may imagine, we're going to be talking about some some nineties goodness. Anyway, before I do so, a uh, quick Patreon plug. Uh, we have really we have released the uh, Sergio Corbucci retrospect mini retrospective a week before. So Navajo Joe, the mercenary, and the Great Silence is what we talked about. We also have still, I mean, still the. the John Carpenter is the thing bonus tie into our shapeshifters and body snatchers marathon is, is available to listen there for free as well. So if you want to listen to the other episodes, you have to pay up three bucks a month is all it takes to kind of get access to all of our bonus podcasts. And then as far as bonus podcasts are concerned, uh, by the time you're listening to this, the first part of our two part Twin Peaks uh, installment of the David Lynch marathon should be available. So we, so, you, so you'll hear us talk about the season one of twin peaks so patreon.com slash uncut gems pod is where you want to go to find this uh find these recordings and um we might as well just get on with the show because i think you know everyone's everyone's just bursting with opinions so um t- today we're not we're not launching any series we're just talking about a movie just just un- disconnected from every uh everything so today we're talking about the uh, stephen hopkins directed uh 1993 i think romp titled judgment night you're pretty good. What's your name? Ray. Ray. Right. Yeah. You're a good negotiator. Because you didn't even lowball me. I'm going to come in here and lowball you? Forget about that. Well, you know, because the thing is, i got to trust you. There's the payment of the money, and then, then there's your friends keeping their mouths shut, you know. No, hold on. We're businessmen, both of us. We have an understanding. Oh. Let me tell you something, uh, Ray. You don't understand shit, okay? Nothing. Guys like you gotta keep checking your pants to see if you got a dick. I got one. You and your friends are the kind of spoon-fed fucking fruit bait that I fucking hate! I don't think he understood me. Shut the fuck up! You speak when fucking spoken to, okay? This is not fucking high school, motherfucker! I'll eat your fucking friends for fucking lunch! You know who we are? No, you have no fucking idea, do you? No, tricks like you, you just sail through life reading about people like me in the newspaper. Hey! 
You're in a different place now, motherfucker. Yeah, $100,000 might buy you out of the North Shore down here, pussy. That means shit. This is my fucking world. $200,000. So Judgment Night uh, stars Emilio Estevez, Cooper Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary, Stephen Dorff, Jeremy Piven, uh, and a bunch of other folks in a, let's just call it uh a chase movie, that's what it is. A chase movie about four guys who dis- who decide one day they want to go for a, for a boxing match in a camper van and then they get sidetracked somewhere because uh, they take a they take a wrong turn, I want to say, and they end up in a very unfriendly neighborhood and they witness a crime and they get um well on the on, on the bad side of some of some really bad bad guys and they are and they have to survive the night, let's just say. So that's pretty much the synopsis. It's a very simple premise. The uh, the idea for the movie, I think, kind of dates back a few years before this happened. So um, it will, I can't remember who originated this, the the film. So we might as well just jump in as well. I think oh Kevin Jar, I think it was he written he he wrote the first spec script for this. Uh, and uh, Jacob, can I can I add a little bit of that to detail to that? Go for it. Yeah, the story with Kevin Jar is extremely interesting to me. Uh, he was actually a writer and director, but he prior to this, he was the writer of Rambo First Blood Part Two, Glory, and Tombstone. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the, the original uh, story was inspired by uh, a story called Escape by Richard DiLello De- and the producer of Judgment Night, uh, Larry Gordon. And Jar's script is kind of like it became sort of a Frankenstein monster because it started in one place and it went through like four or five different iterations. Uh, John Carpenter as well. Yeah, John Carpenter, uh, William Wisher, Christopher Crowe. There was a bunch of people that had their hands in it and it had gone from this, this story where there was like, it started in the desert and there was like biker gangs and these like rooftop motorcycle chases and stuff. And there was only a few components of it that actually ended up making it to the screen. And then the final version that we saw credited in the movie uh, was by Lewis Colick, who ends up getting the, um, the story by credit as well. And mm-hmm. you, you mentioned sort of the synopsis for it. My favorite log line for this film that I found online was deliverance in the hood. <laughs> this is, this is good. <laughs> this is good. This is good. It's not bad. Deliverance in the hood. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Stephen Hopkins got, got attached to it as well at some point. Uh, and then, you know, and he brought in, well, I think we're going to talk about Alan Silvestri because he, he brought in a few people he, he used to work with on Predator 2 and I think, oh, I can't remember what else. Um, anyway, film got released in, ooh, I want to say October uh, 1993. It kind and, of feels like a Halloween uh, movie too. Like yeah. that time of year. Yeah. It kind of does. And then, unfortunately, it didn't really make its money back. And so the audiences of the time did not really appreciate it. The critics didn't appreciate it either. So I think some some critics, I think they appreciated the premise, the, the idea behind what's going on. Um, however, however there's, it's been kind of dismissed as a sort of like a formulaic and maybe maybe thematically problematic film, which I think we'll get to. Uh, and then, however, it's since resurfaced as a as a cult classic because now now I think there is a sizable niche of people who are really into Judgment Night. So how about we just get into our own opinions on this, Jackson? So you tell us what do you feel about Judgment Night? 
I, I discovered your podcast. I think it was uh, back in the fall of last year, uh, as I do on, you know, I find most of these awesome podcasts on Twitter. Someone's retweeted your episode or, you know, sent me a message and said, hey, you need to check out this podcast. And when I when I learned the premise of Uncut Gems, that this was about underappreciated and sort of forgotten films that that have some kind of niche following, uh, Judgment Night was like the first one that popped into my head. And I didn't see it on your list of episodes. And so that's why I messaged you and said, hey, have you guys ever thought of covering this? Because this, I'm like one of those voices on Twitter that like praises this film, even though mm -hmm. the mo most of the time when it comes up, it's usually, oh, this is an awesome soundtrack. Um, the film for me, I, I have a lot of enjoyment over it as well. So the reason why I brought this to you was because, you know, I feel like if you, if you didn't discover this back when it came out in the VHS cable era, it's probably doesn't even exist to you to, mm -hmm. to modern audiences. And so I, I found this back, you know, I probably was 14, 13 or 14, you know, channel surfing through like HBO late at night and landed on this and probably the first time I landed on it in the middle of the film, but it was like one of those movies that you catch it in, in the middle and you're like, Oh, I got to watch this to the end. This is like, <laughs> That's it. like a serious cat and mouse, uh, film. And so, yeah, I, I appreciated the suspenseful set pieces that just kind of like stacked on one another. And then the premise of the film as a whole, um, yeah, similar, similarly to like home alone, I feel like this movie falls squarely into the category of 90s film that doesn't really work in the modern uh, world of smartphones and GPS. Uh, but living within its own time frame, it still works as a really functional thriller. And so, yeah, that was why that's why I came to you with it is because I still have a lot of fondness for it. And I it's one of those movies that I'm sure you've got a few of where you recognize its flaws, but you can kind of appreciate it for uh, the fun ride that it is. Oh yeah, I'm I'm like the world's yeah, we're like that here. most foremost <laughs> apologist for Congo. <laughs> so no, I've got a whole shelf of, of, of films that people just think I'm stupid for liking. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, I'm, glad I'm, in, I'm in good company then. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Randy, what's your take on on Judgment Night? Because this is this is going to be a surprise, right? Yeah. Okay. So. Um... I'll start with I just I just looked it up on Letterbox and sure enough Jackson uh, he's he's speaking some truth here because this does seem to have had a, a resurgence in uh, modern opinions. It's got a three point one, which is a fairly uh, solid uh, star rating for a for forgotten action film from the nineties. I myself have not seen this. I do recall it's being released. Never saw it. So I'm not super familiar with it, except for uh, just the the main the main names who were involved, uh, the, the cast and and Hopkins. Um, and Hopkins is a guy, to be honest, and maybe we'll get into just talking about him a little bit. Oh, he will, always yeah. struck me <laughs> as one of those uh, competent Hollywood directors who doesn't really seem to have his own artistic voice. He's just a, a competent journeyman. He'll swoop into a project, do a good job. He'll nail the pacing. He'll get some action scenes right. And uh, that just seems to be uh, 
his raison d'etre. And uh, at any rate, so he was always one of those guys. Uh, to me, I never really knew what I was going to get with him, but uh, I recalled liking Blown Away. I don't know if that would hold up nowadays. But at any rate, this, you this do is... this, by the way, on one day. Blown Away should, should get on the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, ghost... not a, it's not a bad take. The Ghost in the Go... Darkness as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that that is one actually that... I saw a couple times. I myself didn't like it. My wife loved it, and she's not a cinephile, so that's one I'd totally be willing to go down that rabbit hole and discuss that one. Um, but anyway, this is a this is a story of a guy with a young family, and he's fairly recently married. He's been married for a couple years, and he is now, in the eyes of his friends, no longer cool. His friends think because he's been domesticated, he's got this stick up his ass because he's a family guy now. And I have been living this life for now 16, 17 years. I feel that I'm no longer cool because I have been domesticated. I don't go out. I don't do anything. So there's a certain element... There's a certain element of this story that I'm looking at this pretty closely to see if I am, in fact, anything like Amelia. Do you feel like you want to kind of just, you know, like blow someone away? (laughs) Just to go out in the hood and just witness a crime or something? Well, I think that I think that uh, Randy's touching on an important point that, you know, there's a lot of different layers and conversations that are being had by this film, uh, the depths of which can be maybe debated, but masculinity is one that is is starting from the very first scene you know you have these four different reflections of sort of masculinity and the the paths that you can take and the choices that they have and um yeah i yeah, oh I yeah we're gonna we're gonna get this i think yeah i think we'll be we'll be hitting on that so yeah <laughs> So I, there's a lot of reflection on on me and how I don't get to go anywhere. And the exchange in the opening uh, sort of resonates. Hmm. Now that we have kids, we don't really go anywhere. Would you want to go anywhere? Hmm, not really. So I, I'm, I, I've probably determined I'm not really like any of these guys at all. Because I just as soon stay home and watch Judgment Night or, or something else. But at any rate. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, Randy, I can relate to I've got, you know, three or four friends that are friends I made in college that are in different paths in life. And we still yeah. stay connected, you know, talk every week or two. And but their lives are very different than mine. So this is something that I could definitely uh, relate to. And I probably on the same sort of domesticated uh, uh, track as you. Are you Emilio Estevez or are you uh, Jeremy Piven? I, I would consider myself probably more of the Emilio Estevez, although <laughs> although we can get into it later, but there's this whole sort of backstory to Emilio Estevez that isn't quite paid off. And so yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I re- I don't think I relate the same way to being uh having a reputation as a badass hothead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Me either. <laughs> I mean so um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, just to just to finish up and summarize my thoughts the the film this made me think of quite a bit and it's it's an odd take because it's it's a lot closer to a family film this reminded me a lot of adventures in babysitting and i quite adored that movie um it's just this weird offbeat energy of people that are stuck on the bad side of town and you know a lot of this stuff i can take or leave so i'm i'm mostly on the fence 
So it's one of those films. Sometimes I come in and, you know, maybe someone can convince me it's way worse than it is. Maybe someone can convince me it's better than it is. Uh, I enjoy a lot of this. I think it's a good looking movie. And I particularly like Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary, to me, he's walking right off the stage at Montreal's Just for Last Festival and walking right into a film and he's owning this. And he's one of the coolest video, uh, coolest villains I've seen in a long time. And uh, yeah, he was just amazing in this. So um, yeah, there's a lot to enjoy in this. I've got some issues. I'm sure we're going to get into it, uh, but I'll, I'll leave my opening take at that. Jakob, what do you think? Oh, before I before I share my take, I might as well share because um, Nicolo, uh, best just it's an amazing friend that he is, even though he's uh, he's away because he's he's su- he's suffering terribly. He sent in a little file so that we get his thoughts, and then because I have a feeling that he may not like it. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. Hi, Jakub. Hi, Randy. And hi, Jackson, and everyone listening to this episode. I'm Nicolo Grasso. I'm so so sorry. I cannot be here today. Um, unfortunately, some you know some problems uh, came up, but I'm I'm feeling better now. Um, but I did want to share my quick thoughts on Judgment Night since I did manage to watch it. Um, and unfortunately, this has to be um, one of, of uh, a rare no from me because I there are some things that I do appreciate about Judgment Night. I like the atmosphere. I like the way it captures, you know, the projects with these uh, uh, silhouettes and shadows. There's some very interesting cinematography at play here. We've, we've got some lovely, you know, the Palmas plate diopter shots as well. But sadly, um, I just didn't care. <laughs> Which is a very Nick comment, I know, but it's true. Um, I found the characters to be just surface level boring, um, very little personality that I could latch myself onto, their walking stereotypes and cliches, which is a shame. I was kind of hoping this film would be better paced and that almost two hours long, there's just no reason for it to be like that. Um, needed to be shorter, needed to be not even more action-packed, but just tighter in general and less generic in its approach to the narrative. You can predict who's going to die, who's going to survive, what's going to happen, like... 10-15 minutes before each single beat happens. But I will leave you on a, on a high note. Um, Dennis Leary in this one. I loved him. <laughs> I love his unhinged performance. Um, when he just goes insane, cuckoo bananas, just screaming at people. Um, he seems to be the only one out of the entire cast who's genuinely having fun in the role. Everyone else is just either bored, like Emilio Estevez, or incredibly painfully annoying like jeremy piven but i'll leave you guys do more of talking um and i'm looking forward to listening to the full episodes enjoy okay that's a that's an unusual take from our friend nico (laughs) but i will say that nick has this kind of similar dissenting opinion that i've heard in the past about it and one thing i will agree with him on that take is i do think you could shave off probably about 10 minutes out of this movie easily um and when we get into the the top and bottom uh three moments i'll I'll talk a little bit about that yeah (laughs) i mean what do i always say there's a 90 minute masterpiece in every film right (laughs) right right um can i Um, can i talk a little bit about the the cast here before we jump Uh, into the movie um do you know um i'll i'll quickly jump in with my with my own sort of opening impressions and we'll just 
we'll, we'll just take it. For it. Yeah. Go yeah. for it. So, so uh, yeah, for the listener out there, whenever whenever Nico was was just giving his expose through a <laughs> through a recorded pre-recorded sound file, I was shaking my head this whole time because I really liked this film. I haven't I haven't seen this by the way before. This is something that I remember this discreetly, distinctly. I remember seeing the cover of this in the VHS rental stores that I used to frequent as a as a very young lad, and it was always something that I wanted to rent and it was never there. It was always out and it's just okay so and then it just disappeared off of my radar and then thanks thanks to jackson by the way because it used to be it used to be on a we have the we have the so-called b list as in like there's like a 600 films in an excel spreadsheet of things we should remember we should do one day and judgment night was one one of the sort of films in there and then Jackson, Jackson just reached out this one time, and he's just like, well, "Did you guys? Did, did you ever? Did you ever do judgment?" And I'm like, "No, but it's it. We're doing this now, <laughs> so let's let's just do it. Like, there's an opportunity to you know to grasp. Let's do it." And I really had a lot of fun with this. I, well, I can I can appreciate the criticism of being of the cast being being a little bit generic or and but to me. I never get enough time to be bored because the film just snaps through set piece to set piece, chase to chase. It just never stops, never slows down. Oh, there's a little bit of a moment when it slows down, but it, it slows down for a good reason. And that's that's the sort of roof, the big rooftop set piece that I really like. Um, but overall, I, I feel like Stephen Hopkins is sort of, um, uh, let's just call him, I, I don't, I don't, like, you know, like Edward Zwick is the sort of, it's the sort of, let's just say the poor man's Spielberg. So, or not poor man's Spielberg, because it sounds derogatory, but in sort of the sort of, I don't know, the knockoff Spielberg, so to speak, in terms of style, in terms in terms of what he likes, in terms of how, how he kind of deals with, with filmmaking. And then Stephen Hopkins feel, feel, feels to me like he's the sort of, has the same relationship, but with John Carpenter. Like he has this, I don't know, he has this sort of grasp on, on genre or on, and on visuals that I kind of, find extremely enjoyable and but you kind of feel like the 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 output that he just produces is a little bit less classed up and it's a little bit less classy a bit more dirty a bit more pulpy but i like it like this it's such a 90s film and i I totally agree i think with jackson your opening statement this is a cable film if like you this is something that kids these days won't understand because like my my own eight-year-old doesn't understand the concept of you have to actually sit down at a at a pre-described time to start watching a film because it starts and it's not it's not something you can rewind. <laughs> so this is something that if you watched it on cable, this is even caught it halfway through, you have to finish. And then I would probably treat it the same way if, if I walked in on someone watching this now and I'll, I'll just sit down and, and finish this with them because it's just great. I like everything. I mean, not everything. I like quite a lot of things about it. The music is great. The this Dennis Leary is just on a different level, and I have to kind of just. I I, I didn't quite un, understand where he was coming from, and I had to kind of do some digging because I'm. I mean, uh, I'm not well. I'm 37, so I think I kind of slept through, or I was too young to kind of just catch Dennis Leary as a comedian. Um, and I really appreciate the bold move to cast a guy who's a comedian as a very sort of properly just black on black villain. It's super awesome. So these these are my opening impressions as well. So I really like this film. Judgment Night is a film I'll definitely be coming back to. And then I'm super happy I, I own a Blu-ray. And no, I'm not validating my purchase. <laughs> this 
<laughs> there's no bias in here it's great so uh, yeah let's just jump into this so uh, jackson you wanted to kind of just talk about casting for a second so let's just let's just do this yeah before i jump into the cast i just want to echo both of your thoughts about stephen hopkins i think uh randy summed it up perfectly that he is this ideal journeyman filmmaker from the early 90s someone who i know you you mentioned john carpenter the other person that i have always paired this in in my mind with is um peter hyams mm-hmm. who's also had that Ooh, he's traversed different genres and even jumped yeah. into weird things like stay tuned but then has always come back to this sort of darker aesthetic and i feel like hopkins has done that as well even even lost in space which he did like five years later was like this darker take on Lost in Space. Well, I'm sure the the studio had to rein him in because they said we need to sell some toys. But um, <laughs> it's yeah, supposed Hopkins, to be for kids, right? <laughs> yeah, Hopkins <laughs> has always had that aesthetic, which I've really enjoyed. Um, and I think one of the things that he does so well with Judgment Night that mirrors perfectly with Predator Two is all of the the night shots and all of the um, his aptitude for shooting this entire film under the lens of like. Okay, you know when you're sodium you're, lamps, like sodium street lamps. Exactly, exactly. Like, like orange hue against the blue background. Yeah, but not even just street lamps. Street lamps that feel like they're about to die. Yes, like that's what it feels <laughs> yeah. like he's lighting this film with, and I and I just it's chef's kiss for me. So, mm-hmm. the cast. The one thing I noted about this cast as I was rewatching it, and I've, I've watched it a few times um, over the past couple of years, is that. Estevez is like the one person who's like plateaued in his career coming into this. Like this almost feels like a lateral role for him, like just something you would you would put him in, but it's not like he's his star is still rising. And it almost feels like when they hired him, which we can get into, they were kind of settling for Estevez. Mm-hmm. Everyone else in the cast. There's uh, a story with that, isn't there? I think there's a right. story that right. uh, this went through a few other names, but the production had momentum and yeah. was it was one of these studio productions that okay this is on our slate this is happening and we don't have all the moving parts but this is happening and we're shooting it in february or whatever and it's got to happen so estevez was available i think so that did was, they want tom yeah. cruise or someone like that well there's a list of names one of the ones yeah. that hopkins brought up was john travolta and he wanted Ooh. kevin spacey in the villain role i don't yeah. think i like that movie as much and even post 2017 knowledge of Kevin Spacey. <laughs> I just don't feel like Kevin Spacey brings the heat to that role. Like that 1993 does. Kevin Spacey, I don't see actually. I mean, but then again, no one saw Dennis Leary either, right? No, well, I think well, Estevez is the only name here to uh, to any degree. Well, and Leary, actually, Dennis Leary in 1993 is having like the biggest year of his career at that point because he is in the Sandlot. Demolition Man, Who's the Man, and then his big first stand-up special, No Cure for Cancer, which is the thing yeah. that I had seen him in, was yeah. all in the same year. So Judgment Night is is right amongst all of that. Yeah, and I knew like he was he was a big stand-up uh, comic, and and he was big in Montreal. Like Montreal is a launch pad there just for laughs festival for stand-up com for stand-up comics, and I'm a- aware of see. I was in university in the 90s, so I was aware of Leary. Um, so, and that was that would have been the album. I don't know if that was recorded at, at Montreal, but but he was big as a stand-up comic right around that time. And it was the what was it called? No cure for cancer. Is that was yeah, the, no cure for cancer. Yeah, yeah, they should call these cigarettes tumors. People still going to get them. Yeah, it was a great album too. 
and it was one of the highest selling uh, comedy albums, I, I think, at the time as yeah. well. And I think he's coming after uh, like Andrew Dice Clay. Like he had that that edgy comedy was a big thing that was appealing to, uh, you know, casting agents in, in Hollywood. So it was a great fit. Like the other films you mentioned there, I'd forgotten that he was he was in those. So, yeah, like he was a big deal at the time. Was sure. he in Dem- Demolition Man? I mean, it's been a few years since, he, since I rewatched it. In Demolition Man, there was like this um, underworld of like transients and like criminals and stuff. And when right. uh, John Spartan goes down there, um, Dennis Leary is like the leader of them. Like he's like the Rat King of these yeah. like he's yeah. the uh, Henry Rollins in John Newman Morning. <laughs> basically, basically, yeah. So so he was right in there, and he's playing a similar role in that he is like. They're, they're using his ranting in mm-hmm. and just inserting it into his role. Like I remember, um, I don't know if either of you remember the MTV commercials that they used to put Dennis Leary in, which were just like 30 second rants. And he, he talked about the yes. cigarettes in one of them and they were just like MTV commercials. They, I don't yes. even think they were for anything. I, I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So you're right. It was like uh, someone had just pulled him off the set of those commercials and said, okay, now you're going to be a drug lord. So keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such it's... a ballsy move, by the way, when you think about this. In 2022, the equivalent of this sort of um, like out-of-character casting would be, I don't know, casting like Dave Chappelle in a villain role, right? Like you, someone you who's generally generally likable and has a, a with a positive persona it's it's a gamble right to see if it if it's gonna pay off no right a little right. i think i understand the gamble though because this is also the era of the animated villain like what alan rickman his legacy right with um robin uh, hood robin hood um previously die and hard. then die hard right <laughs> so there's there's this idea of gotta have the animated villain right and i think this ties to that and i think leary just with I guess his prominence just in different areas of the entertainment industry, he seems like a good fit. And this was, what was the budget on this? The 12, oh, 12 million. million, 12 million. Yeah. Like it was, it was fairly million. modest. It was a okay, fairly modest production. Million. 21 so, million. Yeah. 12 million is what it's made. Okay. <laughs> but still, it's, I think it's, I think it's a, a reasonable gamble to, to throw Leary in here. Uh, and it, it sort of makes sense just with, with the era. Another thing I, I noticed is, um, so as, I was, as we were talking about Kevin Spacey and Travolta, the other actors that were offered roles, but either turned them down or it just never panned out, were, like you said, uh, Randy, Tom Cruise, uh, Ray Liotta, Samuel L. Jackson, and Christian Slater. Now, just, you know, you try to imagine who fits into which roles, I'm not sure. But, uh, I mean, Christian Slater seems like he, at that point, would have been the Stephen Dwarf role. Um, well, I, yeah. He's, he's too young to be Estevez, right? Yeah, probably. It's actually fun to actually think about what what roles they took instead, because I think instead he went to to go and do True Romance, right? Yeah, that would have lined up about yeah, that. Time yeah. yeah, I think it was and... a better choice, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like from from the perspective of, of his career, I think like True Romance was something something that's that's that I don't know, ended up working better for him. <laughs> yeah, the the one character actor who, or I guess he's more of a supporting actor normally that's in this movie, but that would have been the more, I guess, predictable choice for the villain. Uh, but I'm glad they included him anyway as a, as a henchman was Peter Green. Uh, yeah. he, he is uh, one of, one of uh, Fallon's 
henchman and i thought oh, he was, he's yeah, zed from pulp great. fiction that's how right. i remember zed. him yeah <laughs> and he's in usual suspects and he, he didn't really he didn't really stick around after 95 or 96 right it, he was in a he, great he, little film called clean he, shaven he was in the mask yeah. as well yeah he was, <laughs> the, the, mask, he was the, right? in the mask yeah <laughs> But that's also around 95, isn't it? 96. Yeah, yeah. that's between yeah. 93 and 96. This was his golden era. That's right. This yeah. is where we cash in. <laughs> yeah. And then, I was um, noticing that that was great casting because he and Leary could be brothers. If they were written as brothers, that would have been a good fit. Right. But yeah, I, I love him as the right-hand man. Yeah, he's great. There, there was an interesting uh, tidbit in one of these interviews with Hopkins where he actually had uh, a run-in with, Peter Green on the set, he had to like check him because Peter Green was, you know, he was doing something that was just not cool and he was having difficulties with, with Hopkins. And so an interesting story that, you know, really? Peter Green was kind of a problem, problem child on the set. Was he a diva? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things I was going to mention as we were kind of looking at all these uh, sliding doors moments of who could have been in it. The three people that I that keep coming up in my head, like because we always hear these like recasting ideas and things like that. If Estevez was not in this role at this time, the other person I think I would have slated in that was had previously worked with Hopkins is Bill Paxton. Oh, I think he could have nice been change. the lead in this really well. And then um, Dennis Leary was. I, I think he did a great job in this. But if you didn't have Dennis Leary as the the drug dealer. I, I could have seen either Lance Hendrickson or Wesley Snipes working really well in that role too mm -hmm. for different yeah. reasons. Or just get yeah. Martin Sheen. Just <laughs> <laughs> it just looks like Estevez. Or just like, I, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I, every time I see Emilio, Emilio Estevez, I'm just like, wow, because they're father and son sort of duo, right? But then just, they're so similar looking. It's just uncanny. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, but it's it's strange because after this, this year he had um, like the year before this he had done Mighty Ducks, and then after this mm -hmm. he had done like I think it was uh, Mighty Ducks two, Mission Impossible, and then he has only like a few other titles, and then his career kind of peters off in terms of acting. Did yeah. he do Bobby? Was that around two thousand? Am I remembering that, correct? Did well, he direct two thousand six? Okay, that was yeah. a lot later, but. Yeah, it seemed that he moved on and I yeah, he just sort of fell off a little bit. But but he was he was the only real name at this time. Like everyone else here was just sort of rising and like Cuba Gooding Jr. Did we know him before Boys of the Hood? Yeah. Boys he in the had, Hood maybe? Well he had Boys in the Hood before this yeah. and then Gladiator and a few good men and then came into this. Oh, and uh Jerry Maguire. Yeah, Jerry Maguire was in ninety six. Yeah. So this was yeah, like so leading. Jerry up Maguire to was this coming out party because yeah. he got an Oscar for it, didn't he? Right. Yes. Yeah. So all these guys are sort of known entities, like Endorf as well. Or is this? Is, um, I don't think he had done, something notable. Notable oh, before. He was super he had young. He called the uh, Power of One a couple mm -hmm. years before, yeah. but that was not as big of a hit. And then um, right. Piven, you know, he had he had had small parts in the player and yeah. singles, but mm -hmm. he hadn't gotten to like pcu or ellen he didn't have a you know tv show yet mm -hmm. yeah yeah none of these guys except estevez could have their name above a title no no exactly and, and, so, and not that not that estevez was the a-lister a-lister I mean, but 
in in I, th- I don't know, it's either perfect casting as in like a casting director decision or maybe this is directorial vision as well because I'm not sure I don't quite know what kind of input say Hopkins would have had to 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 this process but it kind of looks like it's a it's a blessing in disguise because you don't have like a central name to hang your hat on which I think it helps in establishing sort of this basic suspense because you don't quite I mean even though it kind of starts like the hangover with the sort of hit Estevez getting the sort of the spiel from his wife, you know, about like how how I didn't go I didn't get to get out. And then there's a scene in Hangover exactly like this when they just go and it's like, oh my my friends are cool. They're very nice. They're very nice. And they're just paging doctor. <laughs> you know, I don't want to I don't want to throw the F word. It's you know like it's not the it's not the right decade for this. <laughs> um but uh you don't quite I mean the, the reason why I'm saying this is you don't quite know who's going to survive or who's going to get offed so I feel this is almost it works to people's advantage even though like Estevez has kind of a I don't know I feel like he's like you could say that he's the headlining act in here but just by a very small margin I could easily see him get thrown over a rooftop in, in one scene or another like you could you could easily see Cuba Gooding Jr. making being the only one making it out alive you can easily see Steven Dorf making. You can easily see like all of them getting off, and then this film taking a very dark turn by the end. So I don't know. I feel like this is a. I don't. It it, it makes the film a little bit better for me. I think you're probably right on on that. I I see Estevez getting getting through because he is the name at the time. But um, yeah, you you might be onto something there. Like when you these are actors that you don't know as well. When it's a smaller production, um, yeah, I think that that makes a certain amount a certain amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they they hint at that a little bit here and there early on that the other three are all a little bit more unpredictable than Estevez and he's the one that has his shoulder his head on his shoulders more than any um even though he supposedly you know was this guy back in the day that would, you know, lay someone out or was was a hothead or whatever, you know, they they talk about that early on. Um but yeah, I, I, you know, there's a few scenes later on in the film where you're like questioning whether or not Cuba or or Dwarf are going to make it to the end. Mm-hmm. And then here's a here's a question: Is this sort of idea that this is essentially an ensemble piece with not not a single recognizable name? Because I'm I can't I can't vouch for Dennis Liria either. Like, would would people gravitate to the film based on the fact that he's in it? Is this also part of the reason why the film kind of didn't get? Um, the appreciation they didn't get the laurels it deserved at the time and they didn't get the sort of it it didn't make its money back people didn't turn up for it well hopkins mentions that it suffered a rough release because well one of the things was there was a screening in new york um Mm -hmm. i think in the bronx where there was a shootout at the screening and that happened very early on in its release and then there were news stories that were kind of attaching the film to that story and that kind of tarnished its name as they were moving forward into its release and it got it got pulled from screens pretty quickly because of that wow okay so that, oh that's very unfortunate uh, yeah i i don't remember that story but yeah that tends to be if something like that that happens to a, a smaller film then however many screens on it's on the first weekend like there's there tends to be a pattern uh, of how many screens it's on first weekend, second weekend, third weekend. So if that happens, say in the second weekend, then I would say they would just drop it off for the third or fourth. So now I'm really curious what its weekends looked like. And even, even in addition to that, you see films like this 
more frequently in the 90s films like um, Ernest Dickerson's Surviving the Game or uh, Trespass mm -hmm. or any, you know, these kinds of films that are thrillers that are small, that have a lot of cast members that are, you know, still up and coming. If that's made today, that's that's going straight to a streamer. That's not totally. going to get a theatrical release. Yeah. And also it was around this time too, where the studio system said to themselves, you know what, we have a lot of films in the 15 to $35 million budget range. And studio said, we're going to stop making 25 films a year. And we're going to go and make 18 films a year, whatever the numbers were. But they said, we're going to get more bang for our buck if we start focusing on bigger films for summer and our sequels and, and that type of thing. So there was a decision. I always remember um, the film Eddie with um, Whoopi Goldberg. She coaches the uh, New York Knicks, I think. I think that's I the concept. That. Yeah. Yeah. So it, th this article I read talking about uh, the studio's choices, that's the type of film that was on the bubble. These small, medium range films that they're looking just to sort of slot into a March or an October release in the North America release schedule. Those were the films that were on the bubble. And I would say this would be that type of a film as well. So we said $20 million budget release date targeted for October. Uh, it's just one of those films without a cast. And as it turned out, it, like they were just producing this and they were making this happen anyway, um, right up until the last minute because, well, fine, we'll take Estevez. You know, like they were still filling in pieces while this thing was going into production. So it it, it seems to fit that type of uh, business dynamic that was going on at the time, at least for the North American releases. I mean, it kind of feels like it's a, like the self, it's, it's like a Blumhouse horror movie equivalent of like small budget. Like if we, if we, if we double our, double our budget, we're making money. It's fine. Like we don't have to pay off, I don't know, a Jim Carrey or someone, <laughs> some, right. or, or someone, you know, like with a $15 million price tag. And yeah. Then, if this yeah, if this gets made today, I could see it being something like a, a Lee One L or someone like that, and, and doing it under Bloomhouse or something because it's darker, mm -hmm. and definitely being yeah. more along the lines of. Uh, do you remember the uh, Kevin Bacon uh, death sentence movie? It was like a oh the remake of Death Wish yeah. Yeah. by James Wan. Oh yes, yes. yeah, that's yeah. that's more that. in line with what I see this being in today's market. Yeah, yeah. I, I could I'm see just, it. Yeah. I'm just looking just to go back a, a couple paragraphs in our discussion. I'm looking at box office mojo for judgment night and the mm -hmm. North American release. It says here, it only cites three weekends that was in the box office. So quite possibly in the second weekend, so the incident happened. So that's happened pretty much where you're going guys were saying yeah. it got pulled, right? It's a fun, yeah. it, I mean, fun in air quotes because it's not really fun tidbit on IMDb trivia. Like, and I quote, during the filming of the rooftop confrontation between Fallon and Ray, the cast mm. and crew were stunned by the sound of a random unexpected gunshot and the cr crew ran downstairs to find a 16-year-old kid with his head blown off by another youth of the same age as part of a gang initiation by murder. The army was brought in to secure the area the next day and produ production was moved elsewhere, so... Clearly, they were they were working on location, but you know, kind of just yeah. all, kind of sort of segues into the conversation about the theme of, of this film because it's it, it's a, it's an interesting sort of story, especially for 1993. I have a feeling as well. I mean, it's probably timeless in, in a way because it kind of feels like what does this film wants to say? By the way, like what do you what do you guys if there if this film has anything to say, what does it want to say? 
One of the things that I noticed in the film, and I was going to bring this up when we get to it, but as far as the as far as the parallel between the suburban uh, suburban yuppies and those who are you know removed from the realities of the inner city, I felt like when they pull that RV into the into the downtown area, or they they pulled off the expressway and they're stopping, and there's these uh, there's these transients, a, a few homeless people that are kind of approaching the the RV, and one of them pulls out this bottle, and as they're pulling out the bottle, um, Jeremy Piven's character reaches for this pistol that he's got in the drawer, and that paranoia that he's got is like encapsulates sort of the spirit of this movie. <laughs> As they're, you know, yeah. we're, we're heading into the unknown and, um, yeah. And then in addition to the, the things we were talking about, sort of the masculinity of the characters, I feel like there was definitely like a, a paranoia message going on, but at the same time, I felt like in that moment, it was, it was both reiterating or, or sort of emphasizing this message while also talking about it, it was like having a conversation with its own message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I'll say on this, like I, I grew up in the eighties in a very small Canadian, uh, city, Summerside and like very small 14,000 people or so. So when I would, uh, consume, uh, American media and TV shows, I recall being somewhat scared of the inner city element. And it's just something to me that seemed to be communicated throughout the eighties. This film feels a little bit like it's, it is a product from the ass end of the eighties. There's, there's no, there's no question like, um, and the paranoia that you're, you're talking about Jackson, I think that is something I remember being nervous about, um, people who might be homeless or vagrants, or I wouldn't want to go to that side of town. There's just these, these elements of, of fear that seem to be communicated to me through the TV shows that I, that I would watch and the, the films that I would watch as a kid. And I think that's probably very much a product of its time, just Reagan America. And, you know, we had a similar economy in, in Canada where, you know, there was, there was vilification of the poor and you, everything was Disney pristine or it was sort of dark and shady. And just in, in how I consumed entertainment growing up, that there wasn't really a gray middle. And that's, I feel that's here, right? So, uh, so obviously there's, there's not too much elaboration on socioeconomic conditions in, in this film. And there is an element that people on the other side of the track, so to speak, you know, they're mm-hmm. there to be there to be feared. So in, in that way, like it's it's a product of its time. I'm not going to grumble about that, but I find that interesting. And that's something that, um, you know, you wouldn't find. This is another reason why this is a time capsule movie. This is a movie that just you you wouldn't see this type of uh, film this way uh, today. And we will have just, more new ones, right? There'd be yeah. more nuance or, yeah, like just attentions have shifted to, you know, to other areas of, of society or, or whatever. Um, but that's something that um, I, I see as a flavor of the film. If, you know, I don't think there's necessarily a specific comment there, except that it's sort of residue from the time that it was 
uh, originally written. And I think this might be part of the original JAR script that sort of, uh, you know, stuck with it through all of its different uh, writing workshops in the early 90s. Yeah, I think moving it from the desert or wherever it was before to the inner city, while that came with some responsibility and maybe some, uh, you know, some obligations to address um, that socioeconomic difference, I think one of the things, the decisions that they did make that I I think might have been intentional or might have not been is the gangsters, the the drug lord and his henchmen are all white. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is a very different film if you have this black gang pursuing them versus yeah. the villains that we end up with. So I don't True. know if you if that resonated with either of you or if you noticed that. But I mean, I tried to actually position whether they whether they're trying to make any sort of comments on the organized crime of the time. I think it's just coincidental, and, and it's just because they well they got Dennis Leary, so it's just it's just do it that way so it's just a consequence of who they can who they could get get on yeah. get along for and the ride but i think there's an there's an there's a wrinkle to i think well blessing in disguise again uh of moving this from the desert because if you if you imagine the same film in the desert or in the let's just say rural wasteland of america somewhere in middle of nowhere america you're basically stuck with texas chainsaw massacre or the hills have eyes that's pretty much you're 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 remaking this in a stealth way in just with, with a few extra wrinkles so i have a feeling that this is you know right and i, refreshing I feel social. like this is this is also encapsulated in a quote that hopkins hopkins had that i wanted to share with you sure. this was him talking about placing the story in chicago which was cities bring a lot of people together and are also scary to lots of people especially american cities like chicago or la They're designed a certain way where freeways circumvent all the scary areas. You just drive right over the top. And Mm -hmm. and that idea of being so close to safety, but so far away, I think that's what they were getting at in putting it in the inner city. I mean, they. I think what what, if the film's trying to say something is 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 exactly this. There's that to emphasize the class divide that people who are sort of up top. Are so far removed from people down down at the bottom it, that they don't even interact with them when they drive by, uh, when they when they go about their day to drive from A to B because they can use the expressway and that's above everything else above where people live. It's just you, you can cruise along you you, can, you don't even notice people around you because you, because you don't even you don't even see them they're just way below. So it kind of feels like you know it's like Chud or like I could honestly see like Jordan Peele remake this and then just make make this a, a bit of an overt con- conversation mm-hmm. about racial divides in America. I, I could see this happen. I would love like, to see that. Um, but then yeah, I, I I just feel like this this is part of the conversation, and I just went in it. I feel it's actually kind of clever in 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 a way. Now, there are a few things I think. The film opens with this sort of slow motion sort of pan. I mean, there's there's a song, which is great. Uh, but then there's slow motion pan of these kids dr- riding on bikes and there's leaves everywhere. Just leaves everywhere. And these yeah. like older guys going like, ah, oh, you kids, you're just ruining my, my pile of leaves, whatever. And it just feels innocent. But throughout the entire film, like, okay, in a suburban America, you have these leaves and because it's a leafy area because there's trees from these from, w- from which these leaves will fall. In in the shitty part of the town, it's just crap. Like it's, it's just it's newspaper. I wanted to know what the the newspaper budget was on this film. <laughs> yeah, there was the scene where there's newspapers everywhere. It's like a nuclear bomb was set off. 
But I felt this. I I want to. I want to. I want to believe this is this is purposeful to kind of draw a parallel between the two. It's just like look, we don't have trees in here. All we have is just newspapers that just made it and made their way out of the bin because raccoons are just rummaging through the dumpsters and then they left them open or something, or just because no one really cleans this. Yeah, there's an interesting line that ties the the two together. I think it's Estevez who says it, and I think he's saying it to Cuba Gooding Jr. or he's saying it maybe to Piven. He's saying it to one of them. We haven't been more than 10 miles away from where we live this whole time. Like there's some, there's a line close to that. So there's probably something to that. And that's sort of an interesting parallel in sort of suburbia, you know, safe land. Uh, what's blowing around is the beauty and the innocent leaves. But you've got that same dynamic of shit blowing around um, downtown as well. And it's refuse and garbage and you know, wrappers that have, uh, are blowing away out of the, the trash bins. Yeah. That's yeah. what I love about that opening scene that Jacob was describing them panning down in slow motion over Lake Michigan. And then everything in that scene where we have, you know, four or five minutes to showcase mm-hmm. the suburbs is all slow motion and, you know, the busiest suburban street I've ever seen. I don't see anything like that where you have like people like walking in every direction on the sidewalk. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's out of their houses and it is just full of life and thriving. And the weather's and not even good. <laughs> right. right. And so you have that and they needed that moment to uh, juxtapose the stark contrast with the uh, desolate wasteland that we get to later in the movie. Yeah. I wonder if there's an, another piece here going going back to what you're saying about um, how uh, freeways would go over the bad parts of town. So growing up where I did, I didn't really have much exposure to that. Like even in other Canadian cities, like even Toronto and you know Halifax, Montreal, I, I don't know too much of that type of dynamic. But it's there in the states. I was in Seattle recently, and I was in the downtown, and it was actually sort of a frightful place in a way to get out of because you feel you're under where the economy is moving and where the traffic is moving. And I'm just, I'm just, I feel like I felt being in downtown Seattle was in like a dead space. So I wonder if that's a common city planning uh, part of the, part of the culture in, in the States is that you've got a lot of communities that are completely overpassed by uh, by freeways and because I was watching Judgment Night and I'm thinking to myself, how plausible is this? Because when Piven says, oh, well, we'll just go down a few blocks and there'll be another adjunct to get onto a, a ramp to get us back on the freeway. And that never happens. Like I'm thinking what Piven's thinking. Yeah, you go two, three, four blocks and there's going to be, uh, you know, a sign to an exit. Um, it'll be very clear and clearly marked and you should be able to get on. This whole thing is sort of silly. Uh, but no, thinking back to just when I was in Seattle recently, you know, there's a zigzag of cities and it's a bit of a maze to get out onto the uh, highway and to, you know, continue traveling. So, you know, I wonder if this story that as, it, as we see it in Judgment Night, it would resonate more with um, American culture. You know, I could just be living in a bubble, too. No, I think I had um, similar experiences of that, you know going out to areas in Los Angeles where, you know, you're wanting to uh, get off the freeway, but you're not sure. Okay. I am very familiar, unfamiliar with this area. So once I get off, is this going to be, you know, an, a situation where, 
where I'm stuck in circles, you know, it's, and, and I think in the nineties, even more so, cause we're talking about, uh, like I said, before GPS, before other, uh, you know, means of getting yourself out of situations. Was this colored by your uh, intimate knowledge of judgment? Now it's just like, I'm not getting off to express why. <laughs> it's like, what if they kill me? <laughs> I mean, I was wondering, because, okay, I don't live in America. I've never lived in America. But it, here's a question. Does it have anything to do with this sort of like American zoning sort of situations where, say, I don't know, where, where I used to live in different places around around Europe, you don't really get much sort of zoning as in like, here's a here's a neighborhood that's just residential and here is a commercial outfit there's a, th- th- there's just everything's kind of just in like these cities kind of grow a little bit differently so in like if, if you live in london well for instance like okay well london's a bit weird because it has these sort of areas where it's just like i'm not going there right but but um it, it has areas where it's just you, you go down one street it's fine everything bustling with life pubs uh, you know people with beards and flannel shirts selling selling their pickled pickled goods and you take a right slum right and <laughs> so it's it's just it's it's just um a little bit sort of intermixed whereas i have i have a thing that the way it's portrayed at least in in, in the movie kind of suggests that there is a yeah there is this sort of divide almost here's this the leafy suburbia and it's completely separate from the slum and then it's just almost, and then people are so crafty that they build expressways to go over the slums, so you don't even have to look and smell them, right? So yeah, does it have anything to do with that, or is, or am I, or am I just making stuff up? No, I think in in cities like LA and Chicago, you do have that that aspect of you know communities. You can be right next to a bad part of town, and then immediately move into a good side of town. And there's there are neighborhoods, especially you know, in, in certain areas of Los Angeles where it's right up against each other. Oh, and there's right. a, you know, so this is not, um, not unheard of. And, and Cabrini Green, which is the, uh, the housing okay, projects mm-hmm. uh, neighborhood that, that uh, Judgment Night was filmed in. It's actually oh, really? filmed oh, where it's set. Green. Yeah. Candyman. Candyman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same neighborhood. And, and that's what Hopkins talks about is they actually shot that there. I think there was a, a few other uh, scenes that they shot in LA, but for the most part, the the night scenes were shot there. Also, oh, is this where they had this sort of gang related situation as well? Because I, I only you only hear like urban legends about Cabrini Green that's just kind of this rough place. But you know, I don't. I find it fascinating on so many levels. It's just I, 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 like Nicolo, if you're listening to this, I don't know what you. How high are you? But you that you don't don't get this movie. Maybe you're just too young. <laughs> it's just, uh, <laughs> just I don't know. But I don't know. I I I I can I can dig out so so much cool stuff out of this and so much fun. But then again, there's one thing I don't understand is the idea of taking a camper van to a boxing match. Just say I'm just gonna come out and say this. <laughs> it's just there's a few ridiculous things about this film, right? I think but there was a period somewhere in the mid '90s where that where vans and RVs like tricked out really luxury vehicles that are just super excessive. I think that was a, a thing at that point. I don't know. if Randy's going to say something. No, I was just going to say, isn't that the culture of uh, football games, like NFL yeah. football games? You go tailgating, like isn't that? Yeah. Oh. But they're going to yeah, a camp, I, they're going to a boxing match. I suppose this is in a, in an arena in the middle of the city, right? Somewhere in the city center, right? So where would they be tailgating? 
Maybe I'm just I'm I'm this is an ex rectal comment. I'm I'm talking out of my ass. I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it also was. I mean, they could have easily gotten a, a car stuck in the uh, the alleyway just as easily. But I think you know, there's a few different areas where you see. Okay, that makes sense that they chose to have the the RV as their device. Uh, but I I also think the the whole scene at the very beginning where Piven's character explains how he got the RV. I think that was meant to kind of give you an idea oh this is who this guy is mm-hmm. yeah i was just gonna say the rv is is a big character piece anyway and then here we are as the audience sort of dealing with all the quirks of this vehicle but i think it's it's very, very much piven's you know over the top character it's his yeah. ego right yeah <laughs> and they needed something that when they pulled off that expressway down into the uh the slums that would stand out <laughs> Yeah, true. That's. (laughs) I'm I'm just thinking to myself that there's there's the thematic sort of thing going on in here as well. Like first of all, like there's this scene that I almost forgot about um, at the on the expressway when they say, "Oh, let me just change change lanes," and they they try to barge into in front of another car and they almost start a fight. It's this sort of. I don't know. In here, like where I live, it's the, it's the sort of the the Range Rover mentality. Just because you're just like you have a car that's a little bit taller than everybody else, you kind of feel like you have the sort of inherent sense of superiority. And then I feel like this camper van kind of represents the sort of the affluence, the you know the the sense of entitlements. Like, look, I can afford this, therefore I have extra rights and privileges. So you have to you know like make make way when I'm changing lanes, and even though we're stuck in the same traffic. Or, you know, that I expect that you'll just bow to my wishes when I pull off the expressway and ask you for directions and if, if you happen to be a, a drunk vagrant, right? So, so and, and also they're just in this big spaceship um, completely secluded from the outside world. Like they have this, they have the TV with, with a satellite dish, loads of alcohol. They have a gun. They have like a self-sustaining sort of uh, like universe inside this in this camper van that kind of just almost lures them in, into this sort of false sense of security that just well while we're inside it nothing's gonna happen so they take this guy who just who they allegedly uh ran over which i don't really think they did uh and yeah it, it just feels like it's just a part of the sort of thematic commentary about well you can live in a certain part of america and not even be aware of um you know that that there is a that there is a whole universe of people who have to live this kind of existence where you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you don't know whether you're going to survive until tomorrow because there's crime is just rampant everywhere, and then I have a thing that this is obtuse and 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 very um, on the nose as it is. I think this is a commentary. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I think it's like they like you're saying is they're living in a bubble of sorts, and so when they take the camper, that is sort of the you know, the mobile bubble that will take them to their safe destination to see this boxing match. And when they, when they end up in their, in the slums and they're, you know, in danger now, now they're having to, to leave that. And it's sort of like a metaphorical thing there. I, I liked the freeway confrontation scene because I felt like that did a, a really good job of defining the four leads mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So like Piven is, like you said, super entitled just wants wants what he wants is selfish yuppie doesn't care about anyone but him and his friends and that's kind of reflected in that he's just no i'm not backing off i'm going to pull over and then steven dorf's character john is this reckless explosive kid still he's still he's the youngest of all of them so he's still kind of like 
you know, doesn't have anything. He's worried about losing. He's just like ready to jump into a fight. And then Cuba Gooding Jr. is sort of the protective one or the one that's able to be protective of the others. And it's kind of a combination of Estevez and Dwarf's characters. And then Estevez is this character who's supposed to be this formerly badass, you know, guy who used to get into fights. And uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. even says at the end of that scene to Dwarf, he says, your brother would have laid that guy out mm-hmm. before. And so... Here's an interesting dynamic between uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Estevez, right? Mm-hmm. Because you could uh, you could imagine that Estevez is Cuba Gooding Jr. sort of, but sort of translated in time, right? He he used to be this guy who's ready to go, whereas I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is still in the film. He's he's discovering his capabilities, whereas I think Emilio Estevez knows his capabilities and he, he just has to just come back and okay well fine I'm going I'm going to have to just square off against this guy and probably kill him so um I don't know it kind of feels like there's a yin and yang kind of sort of, sort of a relationship between the two and they have this sort of confrontation I think when the when they miss the bus as well which kind of just testifies to this it's, it's, I don't know I have a I have great chemistry I don't know what Nicholas was smoking when he was saying that they're generic come on <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, you know, they also have some some sort of superficial signifiers. You know, he's got that, the Letterman jacket, mm-hmm. you know, that these, these things that almost feel like he should be growing up to Estevez's place, but is still kind of holding on to the glory of his youth. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that a little bit in there, too. He's yeah, well, they're both sort of the same. They're both sort of the same character. They would both have been captains of the football team, right? They're leaders in their own right. But now, a couple years on, you Estevez has family. He's got a totally different perspective. He's got a grown-up perspective. He's he's not, you know, he's not a teenager anymore, so to speak. Whereas Cuba Gooding Jr. has those traits, um, but he's still childish in a way. Doesn't really know how the the world works on the whole like that's how i take them is <laughs> this cuba gooding jr is pretty much bradley cooper in the hangover <laughs> yeah that's a great analog for that because yeah. <laughs> i'm watching this and then especially when these guys pull up in this camper van when estevez is getting schooled by his wife who's just like well I, well you know what his your friends are like and this is exactly the opening to the hangover and it's exactly the same concept these people just thinking they're going one to, to have a, one type of experience, they just end up having a completely different one, although it's a bit more comedic, right? But uh, yeah. And then, yeah. yeah Cuba Jr. is sweet-talking this girl on the street the first time yeah. we see him. And then yeah. later when they're on the freeway and he's like fighting the guy, he's like, <laughs> he's like, just take the pretty girl home. He's like, unless you want me to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, such a good line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This like you, you you see a line like this you hear like line like this in the film and it's like no you know this is done this has been made before 1999 <laughs> yeah well I got I gotta touch on like yeah the few things we need to kind of touch on like one 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 thing is just the villains as well like I mean the whole the whole inciting incident I think it is a fascinating sort of little set piece in its own because I'm, I'm I've watched I've rewound it like three times to make sure that, that I know whether actually they hit a guy as well and I'm not sure they do. It's such an abrupt moment because they literally get left up, up to right? the audience to interpret whether that actually happened or if he just kind of stumbled across the road and and fell onto the curb. It, it they yeah. could have hit him, but they might not have. Yeah, and then I I really 
enjoy this sort of idea okay well you you know what's going to happen because like you you as the audience you're in this sort of hitchcockian seat of i know what's going to happen and these characters don't therefore i'm anxious about what's going to happen and uh when you see i, I don't know about you guys but but when i saw the villains pop up they don't necessarily strike you as uh dangerous immediately they kind of have to earn this in in a way and then from then on you kind of know that Dennis Leary means business and then as film progresses he becomes progressively unhinged almost and and completely over the top villainous right but and to to the point of being uh, like a super villain where you know he seems like it's, he's effectively immortal right but I appreciate the idea that these are just guys in those black leather jackets and then you don't quite know. And maybe there is a, there is a moment or two where you just realize that these people have this weird respect for this guy and then you don't, you don't understand why because he doesn't look like he has... I don't know. He doesn't have this sort of villainous demeanor, does he? I, I think like he does. You... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Randy. Yeah, no, go ahead. I, I was just quickly saying, I, I, I think Leary has that. Like, I think he's sort of commanding and comes across as a, a, a bit of a villain. But I do agree that there's there's something with these guys they have to take it to the next level. Like it's not until they actually waste the guy that things take that turn and you, you see it and you feel it. Yeah. But I think they walk in with that. The inciting incident, as we were mentioning, when they're, when they're pulling him out of the RV and then take him over, you know, you you realize there's something, there's something um, uh, menacing about them, but until, Leary shows up and Leary Leary has like 30 seconds of, uh, of screen time. I think with this, uh, Michael DiLorenzo is the character who plays, uh, uh, the, the guy that they initially kill. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that 30 seconds they establish right away. I feel that he is, you know, he means business, but as the movie goes on, they have to have these moments that raise the stakes each time. And, uh, as we go further into the movie, I can, mention which moments those are but like at the end there's like one moment that doesn't involve any of uh emilio or the other guys where leary finally shows you oh he's off the deep end and he truly is this super villain like you're saying mm-hmm. no because for me he had to yeah because as, as i said like I, for me he was almost a new face because for a second i was just like who where do i know his, his face from I, and i couldn't possibly position him he's not it's not like he's, he's willem defoe williams like i know i know what i'm looking at but um but he had to kind of earn this for me like the, there is a moment where initially he he does this sort of like you know don't move don't what is it don't whisper don't even breathe and and then you feel like it's a little bit comical but then eventually when they have this sort of very uh suspenseful set piece at the rooftop where jeremy piven earn his stri- earns his stripes because he's up to this point, he's this entitled prick. And then he goes and almost accidentally becomes the hero. Uh, even though he, up, up until the very end, he still thinks that he's just, you know, oh, I, put, I put my charm on, on this guy. Let's look, look at, look at me being, being a badass. Right. But, but even though he, he ends up falling off a roof, it kind of feels like he, in in the mind of the audience, I think he redeemed himself. He's like the Boromir sort of, of this movie that he's just like, oh fine, because <laughs> he's just like this asshole, and all of a sudden like, oh fine. <laughs> uh, 
this is in this moment where they after after the guy jump well, drops off the rooftop and then there's this quick moment where Estevez and Leary establish eye contact and they have this sort of almost like a western sort of Henry Fonda Charlie Bronson sort of standoff. This is where I know okay, well, this guy means business. Like this is this is this Dennis Leary's character is 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 truly dangerous. Like it took me like this this long to establish this in my head, but yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, shots in the movie that is kind of paralleled with another in, in Predator 2 is uh, once Emilio st- sets the RV on fire and the gang starts walking towards them, there's this sort of like pan behind them across them and they're all, they've all drawn the guns at that point. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that shot was kind of like pinnacle of like, oh, this is, uh, this is where they, they mean business. This is where they, you know, we're not playing games anymore. And... And then immediately after that, like you said, in the train yard, you know, they're, they're starting to let Leary do his work with the, mm-hmm. the rants and kind of going into talking, talking up the, the, the heroes of this movie. Like he says, this is what we call the condos down here. And he's, he's yelling at them. They're, they're going into my drinking time. And all this was just, it was more and more of what we were kind of sold on with Leary. I think that was that was a good thing about that. Where where his lines supposed to sorry to barge in Randy, but where where his lines supposed to be like these sort of memorable one liners, like this, was this supposed to be like Alan Rickman and Die Hard that he's supposed to be just spouting off these sort of memorable lines, or was this something that uh was not supposed to register too much? I wonder if this isn't uh, scripted in in part. Like this is just Dennis Leary doing doing his shtick. Like a lot of this, a lot of the stuff in the the train yard is is gold. Just some of the crap that he's yelling out is <laughs> is is amazing. So I wonder if a lot of this is just off the cuff type of stuff. But I don't know. But it, it feels like that, knowing Leary's background. Yeah, it definitely had a little bit of a feel for ad libbing, knowing him. Yeah. For me, Leary kind of peaks when, uh, when he really loses his shit in the sort of um, in the sewers, when he elbows his his henchman in the nose, and then he just starts drowning him, and he's just like, I had this guy in my cell, and he just yaps and yaps and yaps, 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 and he just and the other guy goes like, I think he's not getting up, boss. Like, but but the sort of when he loses himself, he just starts just spouting these lines this is when i feel like okay th- yeah I, I i really enjoyed dennis leary i really I, I really want more of him like he's he is kind of like i'm well, not necessarily alan rickman level but he's he's up there yeah i felt like that moment was what i was mentioning earlier was that is sort of the final raising of the stakes of he's willing to kill his own men mm-hmm. um and he just doesn't care at all um the second point where i think the the stakes are really raised is when he kills piven Oh, that had to, like, that had to happen. Was it like, let, let me tell you something, Ray? You don't understand shit. Like when he just turns on him because he, uh, yeah. like, it's a brilliant moment because up to a point he almost looks like he's buying into this crap. He's just like, oh yeah, hundred thousand dollars. Okay, great. Like let's get to, go, let's go to your house, get your hundred thousand dollars. Here's my ring. Oh, I like your ring. And then he just, I like this scene a lot because he turns on him, he spouts these lines, they drop him off the roof, and then after. A throwaway scene after that, um, this guy takes this ring and just tosses it tosses it towards towards his corpse. Like, I don't care about your money. This is not about money. This is not right. Yeah. It goes back to the two things. What 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 are his two rules now that I'm thinking about it at the start? Don't screw me over or don't cheat me out of money. And 
no witnesses. So it, it sort of goes to, yeah, you're wasting my time. You're screwing me over. Now I'm getting pissed off. Now I still got a couple more witnesses to take care of. So I'm still yeah. wasting his time, right? Because he has to waste the night doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, th I think that um, that moment when Ray tries to sell him on it and you think that he's turned him and then uh, Leary just just comes out back at him and just unleashes on him in that that rant style of his. I feel like that was the point at which uh, they weaponized uh, Leary's comedic style mm -hmm. and said, okay, this is where we're going to have it work for our, our villain here. Like he essentially turns into the Joker almost like he's, he's a psycho psychopathic sort of like this sort of villain who's almost like, if you look at him at the right angle, you could pass it. You could pass for like an, uh, like, I don't know, like a harmless sort of guy who just says funny things every now and again. It's just, it's just, there is this sort of aura of something sinister coming out of them that, that when I saw this turn on the rooftop, I finally clicked with it. I mean, I'm sure that it's it's there earlier. I would, I'm 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 just about now thinking, should I actually find time to rewatch this like this weekend as well? But <laughs> <laughs> just just to compare notes with my own, with, with my previous sort of watching. But I really enjoy this this sort of the, the wrinkle to us um, to the psychology of this character. It's fascinating. I don't know. And just to go back, I just wanted to say that uh, about when he uh, first kills the guy, the inciting incident again, I find that just to go back there, I find that is such an amazing moment. Um, and there's 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 a very special uh, there's this very special edit that's going on, doesn't it? Like cut three times and oh, it's going to make got, an appearance. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the, the, the shot you hear six times. And then you've got yeah, the, the reaction shots <laughs> and then you've got the reaction shots. And then, uh, then by the time, just a moment later, you get the explosion. Like to me, that's when the, the film takes off. And then when you're at the top of the building for the, uh, the, the ladder scene, like you've get these, these other moments where it's sort of amplified and intensifying and it's, it's, it's working for me. But I found that was an amazing moment. I think that made it, because I, I said earlier, it felt a bit like uh, Adventures in Babysitting. But when that explosion happens for the RV, so the the kill and then no witnesses and the explosion, we got to get out of here. And then the explosion of the RV, shit got really serious, really fast. And it was, uh, you know, Stephen Hopkins doing what he can do really well. That's 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 how I took it. And anyway, I just wanted to go back to that briefly to, to make that comment. But um, yeah, and, and as far as Leary throughout all that, I yeah, I've always liked him. I don't know if either of you guys uh, invested any time in Rescue Me, his series. Was that a oh, no. show? Oh, the first season, season in particular you, yeah. was yeah, was first season. That was great. And and he did a lot for uh, the the firefighter community after 9/11. The, the guy is a gem. Like he's, yeah, I've I've held Dennis Leary in high regard for a long time. And the first season or two of Rescue Me is, you know, one of those one of those series that uh, you know has a lot of merit. So, anyway, yeah, one of my I digress. One of my favorite moments with Dennis Leary that is I feel like a, a character moment for his character Fallon was after after they leave the train yard and the guys are getting away, they end up in the housing projects there in, in Cabrini green. And when Leary and his guys get there, they encounter another gang. Yes. And I think this was, this was really important 
to set up sort of the, the gangland ecosystem, having like different gangs and different types of gangs. And so you have the, this other gang that he was um, approaching and basically has to pull aside the leader of that gang because they're, they're saying, what, you know, what are you doing on our territory? You know, get out of here and you have no business here. Leary pulls him aside and says, hey, you know, I understand. I'm not trying to run into your territory and do business. And he offers him some cash. And the lines that I love here is when he, when the guy says, hey, man, I'm not going to take your money. And then Leary responds with him. He says, he said, you cannot take my money. He's like, yes, you can take my money. And it was just <laughs> all in that two or Inflection, three lines. Yeah, it's yeah. perfect. And then they follow that up with him giving the guy the money and the and the the gang member looks at it and he says, hey, this money's got blood on it. And Larry says, yes. you ever seen any that doesn't? Oh, it's a good line. Yeah. What a it's line. It's a great exchange. Yeah. And just that flavor sets the whole dynamic of the the villainry. It's it's a different, unique piece from other from other films like it, right? Like it it does stand out in its uniqueness. And it's it's how that plays out. It's the dialogue and it's uh, you know, Leary's performance. Yeah. And then they pursue them into uh the project building and i don't know if either of you caught this on the first watch but hopkins does this amazing like one shot through the hallway when they are when leary's gang is coming in there and they're kicking down doors and they've got the uh guns out and everything it just really well done and really just says a lot in just a short amount of time Mm -hmm. i mean for for hopkins in in terms of his directorial sort of sort of style I, I'm always gravitated to his crane shots I don't know if you noticed mm-hmm. it. it's so like he's very kinetic with it like, like especially when with the sort of when they traverse on the ladder or in the, the ladder in the in, in the sewers which by the way the sewers have a lot of light in the in the end and they just exit through the small hole it's like where's this light coming from but <laughs> but then like I don't know Stephen Hopkins has these sort of like I feel they when they make use of like the steady cam, like they make his he makes his cameraman like jog a lot. <laughs> so there's there's quite a lot of movement. So maybe to a detriment sometimes because you kind of I I kind of sometimes lose the sense of geography of the scenes, and this was probably one of these because then you you cut between the two gangs, as in like the Dennis Leary's gang and these folks trying to escape, and they kind of have a run in with this sort of. Um, the little family unit with this with this woman with a, with a baseball bat and the kid in there and then I, I, it's supposed to be like a little sort of moment of um or brief moment of i don't know respite of i don't know if it, if it's appropriate to say this but of, of almost like a reflection it's like these are regular people who are trapped in here as well like this is the, this is their existence like they don't participate in this sort of gangland you know this this whole menagerie of, of crap they just have to survive in it and then in between the lines almost and they have yeah, to I think it was it was humanizing these characters that mm-hmm. would have otherwise seen just be seen as bystanders mm-hmm. and may have just been played into the the stereotype that that these characters have of them. And so when they're in there and then you see uh, Ray breaks down, he pulls the gun on his friends. And that was another moment where I was like, OK, this is this is a, a character moment because now he he doesn't even want to leave this apartment and he's willing to shoot his friends because they're they want to take the the risk and try to leave in order to save these people and he doesn't care about the people he's just like the cops are coming Mm -hmm. yeah 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 so i'm i don't know and there's one thing we haven't talked about is the music as well i don't know what you guys think about alan silvestri in here just i don't know but 
yeah what, what, what's your take i love the score i i think it's awesome because it's like it, he uses a lot of the predator predator 2 score in this i don't know if mm -hmm. you noticed but yes he, he lifts like full sections of it and apparently originally Silvestri wanted to do more of an electronic score for this and then i don't know if it was pushed back from the studio or what but the electronic score ended up getting scrapped and i think there's a sort of deluxe version of the score that is out of print but you can probably still find it that has a couple of those deleted uh tracks from the electronic score but yeah because just, he, he did go ahead and do it and then it, he had to go, go redo it wasn't it isn't that well, how the yeah. story that did the, the, the electronic score as well or did he hire someone else for it he, he did the electronic score as oh well. yeah. yeah i think so, he did both uh, wonder if I can yeah, find I mean, it on YouTube somewhere. Because, <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm watching this and then Silvestri for me, like there's Silvestri in Back to the Future and Silvestri in Predator, for instance, right? Like there are two different Silvestris, but, they, but he has this sort of these, uh, I don't know, he has these sort of motifs that he puts in his music that, that you can immediately recognize that you're listening to Silvestri. And then I think when I was listening to the score, I mean, I was watching the film, I was just thinking, like, there's there's bits in here lifted from Predator, like, one and two. And there's one, because the, there's this sort of propulsive sort of, like, this, I want to say, like, Central African or Jamaican, like, this sort of Caribbean sort of motif. And I always come back to the opening scene in Predator 2 when you have this sort of, um, like, aerial shot of a jungle. I think the track's called The Jungle as, as well, because you... you I don't know, it's supposed to be this little twist because there's this music that's very propulsive and very, let's just call it um, exotic, and then just changes into more of a predator-type score when you see that he, well, when, when you don't see the trees anymore, you, you just see the, the sort of this, the skyline of LA's uh, downtown, right? And it has the same sort of here, like motif, motifs here when, when they're running away, it's kind of like makes you feel like you're in a like, like you're supposed to imagine that you're not in a, inside of a big city. You could just as well be in like an Amazon jungle as well. Like this, right. just being chased right. by tribesmen of some description because you just stepped on their turf and then, and now they've imprinted on you and then they won't stop until they hunt and kill, hunt down and kill you. Right? Fascinating. Yeah, I caught that in that chase scene from the from the train tracks over to um, the project houses. There's there's a a scene in there where you can just hear those drums and the percussion mm -hmm. and it's it's capturing exactly what you're describing jacob yeah it's um and then in terms of like what he's pu pulling from predator 2 there are these moments where you almost feel like you're in the sort of slaughterhouse in predator 2 and then at the same time just thinking like i'm, I'm thinking actively about predator 2 and predator 1 and then immediately I'm thinking dennis leary looks like J gary Busey as well <laughs> it's just a little bit <laughs> yeah only Gary Busey has, you know, had better teeth, I suppose, but, you know. So for many people, I think the crowning legacy of this movie is the, the actual soundtrack or the, not the score, mm -hmm. but the actual soundtrack um, that was, I think, songs from Judgment Night. And, uh, and it, was, it was this melding of genres of, you know, rock and rap that predated the, the big trend of that in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. And I think they, you know, they had like Ice T and Slayer and um, Chuck D, and I, I, I forget all the bands how they paired them up, but like House of Pain was in there with Helmet, and uh, it's funny because um, I used to listen to all Everlast, these <laughs> Everlast. Uh, but have you heard the soundtrack? 
Uh, well, I've, 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 I don't know. I'm listening to the to the songs as 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 the film goes along. I'm just like I, I remember all this music. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it charted. It was a really successful yeah. soundtrack, and it and it did really well. Everlast would not only play a role in the soundtrack, but obviously then was also featured in the movie as one of the the henchmen for Dennis Leary. He was the guy with the the beanie, mm-hmm. and right. um, he was of course in in House of Pain. And Happy Walters was the, I believe, the music supervisor or a producer on the album who was also managing Cypress Hill and House of Pain at the time. Mm -hmm. And I guess he was tasked with assembling some kind of soundtrack. It's it's kind of there's a there's a whole oral history that uh, Rolling Stone did about it, where he talks about the process of he just sort of reached out to bands and rappers and said, we're doing this. Would you be interested in, in pairing on a song? And the majority of the songs were original songs that actually uh, made it onto the soundtrack. And a, and a handful of them actually made it out on, onto the movie. Um, in that oral history, Everlast goes on record saying he really dislikes the movie. He thinks it's horrible. And he thinks that the, the soundtrack was pretty much the only profitable thing or good thing that came of it. Um, and he was miserable while filming it. Uh, he said that he was high most of the time to keep from complaining and causing trouble for the crew. That's fair enough. Um, DJ, <laughs> DJ Lethal from House of Pain was also offered a role as one of the henchmen, but turned it down because he found his experience filming Meteor Man a few years earlier to be excruciatingly boring. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm just hmm. looking at, again, just like re- reacquainting myself with music. It's, if you think about this, in, in, in the mid-90s, you, you, if you think about pairing up Slayer and Ice-T or Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Or like Run DMC and Living Color. Just, there's, there's so many good bands yeah. in here. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. Really De La Soul was on there. I mean, they did the the opening song with Teenage Fan Club. I mean, <laughs> it was it was a big deal, and I think maybe that's the reason why it still um, it still has a warm legacy. Hopkins says that uh, you know his daughter loves it, and I think it's his daughter or son, <laughs> and that that's why they're glad that he did the movie because he's attached to this big soundtrack, even though the film has been forgotten. So, but if, say what you say forgotten right i think well in general i think general audiences don't remember it but i think there's a niche in here right there is there right. is a cult following and to me when it comes to cult classics or cult films that actually crystallize a cult following around them there's usually a few sort of um distinct traits that they may have and one of them is what's i don't like the word but i think but the words quotability i don't think this film has you know lines that you can just you know it's not pulp fiction that you can just go and like spout lines and people will know where 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 they're coming from although i have a line about like well when the guy says all aboard because you know like he thinks he's like no you're 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 not a conductor this is not what a conductor says this is you're a bus driver it's like shit sit down and shut up it's like that's more like it (laughs) it's just but um uh what makes okay what do you guys think is this sort of cult following um sort of what was the engine for the cult following to kind of just appear around this film if there is one what makes it a cult classic i i i don't know like um and to be honest like i i like to think my radar is not too bad but I, i haven't really heard too many people talk about 
Judgment Night. So this is an area that's a blind spot or I'm asleep on it. But if I'm looking at Letterboxd, you know, there are tens of thousands of reviews of this. So it is, cool. it is, yeah, it's, it's reconnecting and, and rehitting. Um, but I didn't necessarily have a desire to revisit this or sorry, visit it for the first time, uh, you know, and, until I saw it on the, on the roster and it was, was coming up and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I did. So I don't know where this is coming from because it's not widely available. Is it on, on streaming or it's not, I don't it? believe so. No, in, in the UK, you have a nice sort of premium collection, sort of with postcard, Blu-ray. It's just, yeah, another, another sort of... Spec. Yeah, Warner Archive put out a Blu-ray a couple of years ago that I yeah. got it. And that was the... Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't have a Blu-ray for this for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you ask me, the, the cult following, if there is one for this film, is largely built on probably nostalgia for some. Mm-hmm. Um the sort of scrappiness of this movie as like we said, a cable movie that it kind of feels like it kind of feels like a movie that, and I I hate to sound cliche, but a movie that wouldn't get made today or a movie that if it were made today, just you wouldn't have been able to see it in theaters. You would have had to watch it on uh, Netflix or something and just this, but, but then at the same time, it has the craft Mm -hmm. of a, of a well-made capital M movie. And it has a cast of these great actors who are on their way up, who have proven themselves to be great actors. And this is just early on in their career. So I think all of these, all of these elements together are are what create the appeal for this movie, for those who have gone, either gone back and discovered it or those who have been fans of it, you know, over the years. I think there's a piece there in what you just said, Jackson, about there, there's something cool about an identifiable cast when you can go back and look at it and say, these these were before they were stars. Not so much Estevez as he might have been plateauing at this point, but everyone else, like this was uh, Gooding Jr. before his Oscar. This was Leary just sort of on the 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 porch, the front step of, of his stardom and Jeremy Piven before he hit a number of big, projects and became identifiable uh peter green before he became sort of a mid-90s uh indie before icon five minutes of <laughs> yes well this this was the first of the first was... minute of the five <laughs> um but like if you think of something like young guns or the outsiders like there is an appeal to those types of films that that extends their shelf life when you look back and say that was sort of a cool cast and that's sort of a phenomenon i think that uh is going to be fading uh, since the since the two thousands because just star quality isn't something that we commodify in the same way and really appreciate as viewers maybe in the same way. But going back to the eighties and the nineties, you say, "Oh, that was sort of a cool cast," and that was a cool cast. Um, like Outsiders is one. It's not a. It's a film that is there and is identifiable to me, and lots of people know it. And what's the big reason to go back to the Outsiders, other than? The last two years, my kids read the book in grade eight. <laughs> Other than that, <laughs> uh, there's a reason to go back to see the cast. And I, I think that could be a big piece. Um, and, and you said it, Jackson. I, I think as I look back, that might be why it has a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, is, but now that you mentioned as well, the sort of the star factor as well. Like this is a, a coming at the time where, 
Hollywood is all about the sort of the, the leading man star machine, right? So there's your Schwarzeneggers, there's your Stallones, there's your Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is just about making it, right? Uh, Cruise is there. Cruise is Hank, there. Hanks is turning into one at that point. Willis is turning into one. Yeah, but there's still these are like Hollywood relies on these sort of engines of people who are paid in you know like d- double digit million dollar salaries for a single movie, and then they are supposed to carry this movie along and make sure that it makes bank. This is one of those sort of examples of like uh, when i think of this film it's kind of like you know like the breakfast clubs and that toy soldiers is another one that's kind of like a genre film and by the way there's a spoiler for a few like stay tuned a few months from now we're gonna be talking toy soldiers i can't wait i love toy soldiers do you want to come on (laughs) i would love to that's that's another one of those that i feel like you know it's it's these weird uh it's like a waiting room for a lot of these actors that went on Uh to do other stuff too so yeah so it's yeah it's like the sort of the stand by me with guns <laughs> so yeah so yeah. and this kind of looks die, like it's just die about hard there. in a boarding hmm? school right yeah pretty much yeah and then because like toy soldiers i i grew up with like this was a like comfort for me when i was younger <laughs> like it's a weird thing to say because there's a lot of a lot of killing and a lot of dying in there but this is something that when i was like 12 it would be just on repeat <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Why are you watching? Like, don't worry. <laughs> it's just, um, but yeah, so it kind of feels like this is this sort of rare ensemble piece in a world where uh, Hollywood is banking on the Schwarzeneggers and the Willises and the Tom Hankses and, yeah. and as, as opposed to on ensembles. And it kind of feels like this is one of the sort of reasons why it died so quickly, apart from, well, the, the shooting incident, incident as well. Yeah. But... Yeah. The just the machinery of the studios, like going back to what we were saying sort of at, earlier on, the machinery of the studios, I think that they were on autopilot themselves, that they had to have a roster of so many films. And then there would be a few just sort of at the bottom that they wanted to get out because they wanted to fill a spot in the release schedule. And they might end up being, uh, you know, something like Toy Soldiers, where you've got an ensemble of you know up and comers that have some cool credits but you know no leads and i i think that uh this this is just an example of that and i think that hollywood said well the studio said yeah we can't just be making stuff for the sake of making it we've we've got to get a return on our investment and i i i think that's sort of in play here too just the the business model at the time yeah going back and reading you know, the information about the, the people that they wanted in the roles and things like that. This feels like a film that maybe originally had a much bigger name in the lead and was going to be centered around that lead. And when that didn't pan out and they they had to get Estevez, that it was probably <laughs> like, too... The, the train had left the station. Is and like so they the were like, we got to just move forward. <laughs> what was that, Jacob? It's like the Three Stooges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had to well, they had to move forward with the movie and Estevez was just big enough. I mean, he had some cachet. He had just done this massive movie with Disney, The Mighty Ducks, which mm-hmm. you know feels feels kind of funny to to look at this movie sandwiched between the two Mighty Ducks movies in his filmography. But um, yeah, still still were able to to do something with it, even though uh, ultimately it didn't uh, produce a hit at the box office. Mm-hmm. And I think I was reading. I think there's a story with Estevez just because he was available, because everyone else, it didn't work out or they said no to it. Um, and Estevez was available. Didn't he? I think he overcharged them. Like, I think he said, no, my, my asking fee here is $4 million, which was above his usual asking fee. 
And they said, oh, fine, because we've got to get this thing going. The budget? Yeah. <laughs> I think I heard that as well. Another funny story yeah. that Hopkins uh, shared in an interview about Estevez is he said, you know, you're down in the real uh, inner city shooting, and we were talking about how they interacted. They had some violent situations happening around them and how you have all these actors, these Hollywood actors who are, you know, having to, to be out there in all of this. And the, he said that the one person who seemed the most real deal and ready to, to deal with the situation if something was going to happen was Estevez. All right. He said Estevez was not very Hollywood when they were on the set. And he was, you know, he was a, a real uh, intense guy when it came to is there is something going to happen? Is this a serious situation? It's a it's a I don't know, fascinating sort of bizarre situation because if you think about it, these are all multi millionaires. Because like let's be honest, even even sort of Cooper Gooding Jr. who's just about making it, he's still rolling in dough. Let's just say like he's not he, he's not on the breadline, right? So, so these are these guys who are shooting on location in Chicago and they have to just pull in the army to stop the shooting because there is a gun. Gang violent in, violence incidents just just outside their door, so they're effectively living Judgment Night only with cameras. It's right. That was fascinating to me. <laughs> was Young Emilio? I wonder if Young Emilio was uh, in Philippines or wherever they shot Apocalypse Now with with Martin. Was was he part of that? I know Coppola took his family for a good chunk of the shoot. I wonder if well, it took Emilio like makes obviously right. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if just Emilio just sort of grew up with this idea. Like sometimes you're just, you're in the thick of it. And he was maybe just a little bit more weathered and world weary than uh, the other guys as they were coming from different backgrounds. I'm just throwing that out there as a quick theory. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting take. I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that when we're talking about the the legacy of this movie, the people that I always talk to online who are like, "Oh yeah, Judgment Night, I love this movie." They're most of the time they're people who have grown up with it, mm-hmm. but every once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, someone will say, "Oh yeah, I saw people talking about this," and I'm like, "Where did this movie come from? Like, I didn't even know this existed." And and so it's it's always fun to hear about someone discover this movie uh, from a time before you know, everything was IP and everything Mm -hmm. was big franchises and you could have a movie that was supposed to sell based on the names above the title. Yeah, it's kind of like two weeks ago, we talked about The Hidden from 1987. It's kind of a similar sort of situation, a film that absolutely nobody talks about ever. Yeah. Apart from, And then when people do talk about it, it's like, guess what I just discovered? Look at this. It's amazing. It has Kyle McLachlan. It doesn't have anyone recognizable apart from maybe Kyle McLachlan these days because you'd, you'd recognize him from I don't know, people would know him now because he's he's a name, but it's just still like a bunch of nobodies in the film, like people who are just about making it, and it's just great. And I, f- I feel like this is a, a an era long forgotten, and I, have, and I also feel like there's, yeah, I, I take immense pleasure when I see people discover stuff that I like now, especially people who are much younger as well, will be just like... For them, it's a classic. I mean, it makes me feel super old, right? When people when people would refer to this, this is a classic. Like, come on, it's from nineteen ninety three. It's not that far. It's not that long ago. It's like thirty years. <laughs> but yeah, I'm con- constantly reminded of my mortality by <laughs> by learning how old movies are that I love. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just just the other week, I had this sort of it's it's not a it's not an epiphany. It's like one of those shower thoughts when you know people I can discover that people think of. Backstreet Boys now the way 
I used to think of the Beatles when I when the Backstreet Boys were a new thing on the block <laughs> because the this this the space of time between 90s and 60s is exactly the same as between now and the 90s and I'm, it makes me feel super old but hey yeah <laughs> someone someone said the other day that uh if they did back to the future now Marty would be going back in time to 1992 he would yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh and I'm pretty sure if he was going, was it 30 years into the future? I'm not sure that it would be any flying cars whatsoever. Like the sort of version of the future that Robert Zemeckis had in mind would be nowhere near as sort of idyllic and pristine and serene with just like, look at all the technology we have and look at these sort of rehydrated, reformed pizzas that are just this small when you when, when you buy them and just whatever. No, it's going to be a nuclear wasteland. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, the one other thing I was going to ask about is, can we talk about the swap meet at the end? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so this final confrontation takes place at the swap meet. I remember watching it as as a kid and wondering, like, what is this? Is this a supermarket? Is this like, you can't really tell because there's like sporting goods and all this stuff going on in this, this swap meet. And then they get in there and, you know, they've just escaped the sewers or whatever. And... Um, they start setting off the alarms and these little, these rent-a-cop security guards come out. And this was one of the things that in this, in this part, I was like, oh, this is, I would have liked to have seen more of, more of this, more of them interacting with other people in this desperate mm-hmm. situation and the other people realizing how much trouble these guys are in. And, and so them, them ending up at this, this swap meet and having to, then they have the, the the villains follow them there. I thought that was interesting, but I I feel like this was one of the scenes in the movie that didn't pan out as much as I would have liked, or it didn't deliver on the promise that this whole pursuit is sort of giving you. How come? They're really building up the final confrontation of this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose it is baked into the sort of the, the texture of the film because at the end of the day, Dennis Leary is just a guy. Yeah. So it, like at some point you just have to have a fisticuff, right? <laughs> right. And and that's that's my issue here is that so they have a shootout and then Everlast gets shot and Cuba Gooding gets shot and then um, Emilio hides Stephen Dorff and Cuba Gooding Jr. in this bathroom because they've both been seriously wounded and is going to lure Dennis Leary out to have this you know fist fight mm-hmm. with him or, or whatever. And I just felt like at that point now, now Dennis Leary has, you know, been talking about his wife and he has his wallet and he's like, I'm going to go and visit your wife at your house. I was ready for them to finally pay off the reputation that Emilio had and say, let's, let's really show him who this guy is and why he was such a, you know, you know, unrelenting, just hothead back in the day and, and really go into him. But it really didn't seem to like, show that in the final battle i mean they're they're fighting each other and they're look there's a lot of glass cases yeah they're like there's like 80 glass cases around them that are getting thrown into yeah they're a remnant of the 80s i know and it just it looks like it's real glass it's not 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 i mean maybe it's just the hollywood glass because they yeah then it's really just puts emilio estevez head first into one of these glasses i'm just saying the shards are are just this massive like how did it how did they survive this? It's beyond me. <laughs> so 
I'm hoping that this is just you know, like guys on set were like, don't worry, this is Hollywood glass. It's not, it's not sharp. Don't worry. But yeah. <laughs> I think it works for, for me. I, I was satisfied with it myself. And I, I guess now like, and, and in part our conversation has fleshed this out a little bit more, but I, I see that Estevez is doing both sides of the character. So what he is, is he is the dad he is, he has taken care of, you know, the, his injured mates. So he's played the dad role and he, he does take it to, to Leary. So he does play out his bad acidness a, a little bit. Um, I can appreciate if you thought it was a little bit anticlimactic, but I, I think it's there. And, and as I'm looking at what Estevez has become in part, because of this conversation is just flushing itself out a bit better, but um, I, I think it works and I'm, I'm satisfied. I wasn't bothered by it. I, I, I felt it was sort of in the same tone of uh, a lot of the, the, the previous scenes, especially in the sewer. I mean, maybe, yeah, I still, maybe, I still enjoyed it, but I think part yeah. of what made me, made me, you know, pull that apart in terms of like my feelings about it was this, you know, coming up with our top three moments and our top bottom moments. And so that was, I was trying to find the weak points for me in that, but ultimately, mm -hmm. yeah, I enjoyed the, the final battle between the two of them, even when, um, I don't know if you guys caught this, but so when Leary is fighting with them. They get into this tussle and they get to the edge of this like stairwell like, shaft. Grab me. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's, he he's hanging over the edge. And there's like this moment of like moral question in Emilio where he's like, is he going to let him go or is he going to save him? And he's like, he's about to save this guy who's been like killing his friends and like chasing him all night. That's his and instinct then, though, right? He's a good that's guy. That's his instinct. Yeah, he's it's the good his, guy. But He's the dad. <laughs> he's the dad. But then ultimately... <laughs> Leary ends up like, you know, attacking him again and he lets him go because he, he, there's no saving this guy. And so he drops him. And I just, I laughed to myself at this, this little line the whole time because it has never been built up, but he says, don't call me Francis. Oh yeah. Cause which is, cause he almost like his, Francis uh, every now yeah. and again, is that almost yeah. like in a, in a condescending yeah. way? Come on, Francis. Yeah. Francis is such an unmasculine name, right? Just, yeah, so it was like his yippee kaye line yeah. there at the end. It actually it reminded me of a a good friend actually who's a stand up comedian who met Larry years and years ago in Montreal. If I'm remembering the story correctly, but anyway, my friend's name is Francois, and he's got uh, he's got a whole shtick about you know being the the kid named Francois growing up. <laughs> so and yeah, so Francis, yeah, and it's always Frank, right? So. He yeah. wants to be called Frank, and uh, same with my friend. You know, he's called Frank, and uh, anyway, so that's what he gets into it, isn't it? <laughs> just, Don't call me Francis. Just, yeah, yeah. So was I was just, laughing yeah. to myself about every time he uh, Leary would call out, "Where are you, Francis?" Like I, I think I thought that was great, and uh, yeah. So to me, that that was built up fine. Every time Leary said Francis, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> No, it's a, I don't know. It's the only thing I would say about the ending because I like the set piece as it is, especially the the initial sort of conceit of the set piece of getting in there, punching in the alarm, and getting the sort of rent a cop security guards, and then you think and and luring yourself into a false sense of security. Oh, we're safe. And there's this one wrinkle in there, by the way, where the security guys are like frisking them 
And they're like, yes. oh, Frisco, hey, mm, just touch me and whatever. And then yeah. Cuba Gooding Jr. has a gun. And like, and then you realize, holy shit, they're going to find the gun. They're going to kill me because I'm black and I have a gun. And, and then it will just immediately will just waste me. Right. <laughs> so yeah. there's this sort of moment of like, no, no, don't take this the wrong way, but I have a gun <laughs> sort of situation. But in, in general, this whole set piece, I would say if, if this film is an hour and 50 minutes to shave it off to 90, I think five to 10 of this, of these minutes could be taken out of there. Kind of just to make this sort of set piece a little bit tighter, just to make it maybe simpler. I think that will be probably a, a bit helpful because eventually you're just like, okay, well, we're spending quite a lot of time uh, hiding and chasing. Whereas I think I was already, I was, I was ready for, um, for this confrontation where, you know, like Emilio Estevez is kind of the sort of the incredible Hulk sort of character where he's just trying to just keep it in. She's trying to kind of be, be safe. And then he, I, I would love to for, for this to have been simpler as in like, well, he, he gets put over the edge by, um, Lance Leary's comments about the address that he knows and then what he's going to do to his wife and then what he's going to do this to his kid. And then this is where I wanted to, him to kind of just I, I either get taken over by the rage or just, I, I don't know, do something quicker, I, I suppose. That's that's kind of like my only sort of, like ma- I don't know, major complaint about the film. I've got a bunch of complaints that are just a little bit funnier, I, I suppose, a little bit sort of for, you know, top five and bottom five sort of moments or top three, bottom three moments. But but this is sort of in, the only sort of complaint I have is in terms of pacing. I think it kind of comes in there. I don't know what you guys think, Jackson. Jackson, you feel, I feel you feel the same way that this sort of swap meet is a little bit too long for its own good. Yeah, I, I like I said uh, to Randy earlier, I, I don't mind the swap meet section, but it does feel a little drawn out. And the other section that I, I would probably cut if someone told me you have to cut something out of this movie would probably be the section between the sewer and the swap meet when they get out of the sewer and they, they like end up in this building and they're talking about like, I'm, I'm scared too. And um, Steven Dorff and Emilio have like a moment there. And then they go chasing this bus that pulls into the Mm -hmm. pulls down in, in on their street. And I feel like that was meant to say, okay, it's really desolate here. There's no help coming, but we've already established that. So that seemed, didn't seem as, necessary as some of the other parts if i had mm-hmm. to cut something i can i throw a, a take onto that because i quite liked the the bus moment because i had a bit of a read on it that um that here these uh well-off people and now they are they're not in their comfort zone they're on the wrong side of the tracks and they can't get out and there's legitimately stuff to be frightened of and scared of on this side of the tracks um and once you remove them of their wealth and their privilege and whatever, they're just like everyone else. And that's how the bus driver sees them. So there's, there's not really that much difference between people at the end of the day. Take away, your, take away your wallet, take away your ability to communicate to, uh, you know, the people that will come in and swoop in and rescue. Once you strip people away, uh, everyone's the same. And that's how the bus driver took because when they're banging on the bus I thought, okay yeah this should be this should be their out but of course it isn't because they're just random people running up slapping the side of the bus and hey pull over pull over, you know and the bus driver wants no piece of that he has uh, so, no idea who they are yeah and- so i sort of like that moment because that's that's sort of how i took it because these guys there they are now uh stripped away of everything and so they're just like the vagrants that they pulled up to at the beginning with if no survival like skills. <laughs> I like that take, Randy. I didn't, yeah. I didn't really think about it in that light, but 
if you think, if you think about it the bus driver is vindicated in her in her thinking it's just oh this is this is potentially a dangerous situation i'm not stopping for these for these bozos because Cuba gooding jr shoots up the bus yeah. <laughs> i'm like she's probably just sitting there just bullets whizzing like thank god i didn't stop for this <laughs> just, yeah <laughs> that's why i never stop <laughs> yeah I, I don't know. It's an interesting take when you think about this. You know, it's all it's all comes down to the sort of the class divide and how 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 much you you feel like you're you're entitled because you know, I don't know you're in a fancy camper van and then you have you know your satellite phone and vodka in your um, in your mini bar and a mobile satellite TV in 1993. Right, it must have been well <laughs> off. Like, and by the way, yeah, I mean. I don't have it as my bottom three moment, but did you guys notice in the boxing match that they're watching, there's Foley work on the, oh. <laughs> on, on the on the boxing match. So they're watching an actual boxing match in as in supposed to be a pay-per-view television, and you hear this sort of superimposed sounds of on this Mike Tyson guy just pounding a guy. <laughs> I, that was mentioned on IMDb trivia or under the IMDb groups or something. Yeah, I, I didn't notice it. I didn't notice oh my it myself. God, I'm just but... laughing my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. That was such a weird moment. This is so nineties. Like they're just like we need to amp this up. Like this needs to. This need, these need to. These scenes need to kick, guys. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of a random moment, but something that I was going to mention earlier. Uh, when they're on the rooftop, I don't know if you guys caught this, but uh, Cuba shoots back at the villains and then they kind of duck behind this wall and they say, I can't believe that these guys have guns. And then the other one says, yeah, they make it too easy today. Like it sounded like a weird sort of like little commentary on like like gun violence or something like and it, and it, it was probably a throwaway line in 1993, yeah. but it really sounded a little bit different now in 2022. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this sort of gun access to guns in America comment is kind of just well, it, it kind of goes to show it's been a problem for a while. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm out of notes, by the way. So I, I propose that we maybe slowly wrap wrap this up with our final takes, unless there's something else that you really need to get off your chest. How about that? Yeah, I Anything think else? I've got most of my notes. Uh, done except for my my top three. Yeah, okay, I think I'm, I'm well covered. I think. Oh, I think it's a good moment to you know wrap things up a little bit, and then um, how about we share our quick final takes, and then we'll get to the top threes and bottom threes. So uh, Jackson, tell us a few final mo- few final sentences. Judgment night, yeah, yay or nay? How do you feel? Uh, I'm gonna say firmly a yay on this one because, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, this is this is a movie that while. I recognize it has its flaws and is is not perfect. Even though I will use hyperbole all day on Twitter, um, it's a it's a fun ride. It's it's if if you like a movie that has sort of set pieces stacked on top of one another, this is like one of those where it's just like they're going from one thing to the next to the next, and I feel like each one is is just mounting and in, in uh, you know escalating the suspense. Um, I liked seeing all these actors at the start or earlier on at least in their career and then um yeah for me it's it's sort of a a a comfort film in that sense just because i i enjoy coming back to it from time to time awesome randmeister general tell me (laughs) what do you think 
All, all right. So I, I came into this really looking forward to this discussion. I think at the start of this chat, I was around a B, a solid B. I enjoyed this, thought it was well paced. But um, yeah, I, I think you guys have swayed me. Now I'm going to lean a little bit more to a B plus. This is a really solid action film from uh, the 90s. Uh, I think it's interesting in any one of a number of ways uh, in in particular that there are certain thematics that that hold up and that are there if you start picking at this and they're there in a reasonable fashion. I really enjoy Dennis Leary in this, uh, more on him in a minute, but this is also a really good looking film and I was happy these last two hours to be, you know, sitting in the church of Stephen Hopkins because I always sort of thought the gentleman was a, a solid uh, studio guy, a little bit of a hack maybe in his own right, but I, I, I think his talent may run quite a bit deeper. And uh, yeah, I was really, really uh, happy to be part of this conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm a believer. Yeah, I feel like I really like this film. And I'm, at this point, I'm not, I'm, I'm now completely convinced why this film was always rented out when I was young and impressionable and ready to embrace this as a kid and then because this was ever been just right up my alley when I was <laughs> when I was growing up but then now I have having seen this now and having had this conversation this is just amazing I mean it's not going to be a five stars because there's there's a few things that we just like okay, I can't but honestly this is a this is this is a good good old-fashioned movie like you they don't make them like they used to you know this is a this is a relic of its time great and it's just a bombastic experience it's just it's a great way to sp spend 109 minutes i'll put it that way that's just such an easy time to watch this movie even though it took me a while to kind of get on board with certain things but especially now having having talked about this for two hours almost uh it's I don't. It has so much more than you actually. Like, if you actually scratch at the surface, it, there's quite a lot of cool stuff to 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 dig in and to dig into in this film. And I really like to dig into things in, in even in like small genre films that usually people dismiss as superficial crap, just entertainment for the masses. This film has stuff to say. This film has craft beneath beneath its sort of epidermis. It's great. Uh, all around cool film. I. I I don't know. I don't know if if Tarantino saw this film and like I want this guy to be uh, to be in Pulp Fiction. Let's just get this guy in uh, you know, <laughs> to be that. But uh, I don't know. It feels like it, this is just right up right in my wheelhouse type of type of sort of entertainment. So, bottom top threes and bottom threes. Jackson, let's just do our top threes first. So give us your top three moments from Judgment Night. All right, my top three moments. Um... Number one with a bullet was the the inciting incident, the initial murder and the escape from the RV. Uh, this is just one of those moments that I feel like I feel like the tension is built extremely well here. The heroes are essentially backed into a corner where they have to witness this all happen, and then it just unravels just in in disaster. And I I think that the the first time I watched this movie. I, I have a feeling that it's been so long, but I have a feeling I started at this moment. Like I just landed on the channel at this moment. And I think you could do that with anyone. If they, if you turned it on for someone at this moment, they'd be, they'd be hooked. Um, so that's my number one. Um, my, my number two is the high rider, uh, the high rise uh, ladder escape and mm -hmm. raise death. 
Um, I think for a lot of people who watch this movie or who are familiar with the movie, um, this is maybe one of the, the moments that they are most familiar with or they think of. It stands out, like we were saying, Hopkins' shooting style is really on display here. Um, Dennis Leary is at the, the height of his powers here, showing what he can do. Uh, Piven, who, you know, I know Nick said earlier that, you know, he was annoyed by him, but I think what he is doing here is what Piven is, is hired to do, and he's doing it great in this place. And so just to have them both uh, operating on all cylinders and then having um, the scene unravel in the way that it does and then have that exchange, that, that look that we were talking about between uh, Leary and Estevez at the end, and it just, it just sets off the, the next uh, stage of the movie perfectly. Um, and then the last of my top three moments was the train set piece. I just, I, I have this memory, you know, in my head from the first time I've seen this to every time, you know, watching it since. This is like one of those scenes that's just really interesting to have uh, our, our heroes end up in this train car uh, with this group of transients and have, you know, because they're, it's a life or death situation, uh, the, the playing field is leveled. And the transients are like, well, what are you going to do for us? And have them have to start taking off their watches and their necklaces and their wallets and do whatever they can to get these guys to, to level with them. And ultimately it, it unravels and doesn't work out. But yeah, that was, that was another really uh, suspenseful moment that I enjoy. Awesome. By the way, and there's just, commentary. Sorry. I was just gonna say, and there's commentary built into that too, especially with the guy saying like he went to university and, you know, then of course there's the whole, the, the poverty line, you know, that, that separates the two groups and the, the stripping of the, the wares of the wealthy group. So yeah, that, that, that is a, a good moment too. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Jakob, go ahead. No, I just wanted to kind of, just, when you, when you were mentioning, it's like, oh, you know, this is this, the, the, the sort of the execution moment is where you'd often <laughs> just while channel surfing, you'd just find this, oh, okay, well, this is what I'm sticking. And I just remembered that, I think on my fifth or fourth go, I realized that there is a whole set piece in Predator where they invade on this village. Because like for the first four or five times when I watched Predator on television, I've always caught it after the, you know, <laughs> basically like I, I caught up with the film when, when the Predator was already in the picture. <laughs> and then just, it took me a while to, there's this whole thing in here? I didn't quite know. <laughs> It's a, it was a, an amazing discovery I made. <laughs> uh, anyway, Randy, tell us your tops. All right. Um, honorable mention. Gentleman's name, Peter Levy, the cinematographer. This is really a good-looking movie. And uh, we were talking about Peter Hyams, like very interesting comparison uh, between... Uh, uh, Hyam's work as a cinematographer and uh, Levy's work here. This is uh, a gorgeous, gorgeous looking action scene. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And uh, I made a and comment I here. Levy, I think Levy's yeah. shot almost every one of Hopkins movies. I think so. Ooh. I was just looking on IMDb. Yeah. And I think a couple John Woo films like Broken Arrow was him. So at, at any rate, it's, it's interesting and uh, really sharp, nice looking uh, night, night shots, night shooting you know a lot of blue light and the blues anyway. and the oranges oh my goodness yeah even on and the so, poster you see this 
yeah, the a lot orange. of 80s in that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, I definitely wanted to uh, mention the cinematography here. Okay, I will say this: the opening shot, the the shot with the, the crane, and it swoops down in, in slow motion and uh, goes by all of the the residents that are doing their outdoor activities at the exact same moment of the day, which we said. But it's a gorgeous shot. Um, and then something I liked about it because I watched the opening a couple times and watched this shot uh, a couple extra times. I like how it moves from the song into the, the scene where Emilio Estevez exits the door and the slow-mo transitions uh, just an instant before uh, he comes out the door for, and it transitions from slow motion speed to regular speed. And so I thought that was sort of an interesting um, sort of just in the shot uh, change that they would have uh, done in, in po- I don't know how do they do that. Would they do that in post? Would they do that in camera? But at any rate, it, it changes. The shot changes from slow motion to uh, regular. I, I really Unless like they have just shot. a very sort of high frame rate that they can slow it, slow it down yeah, without having the sort of stutter step. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I'll also say the inciting incident, the uh, the moment where Leary wastes, wastes the young the young guy, things get really serious. All of a sudden, you've got slow-mo in there. Leary's face lights up uh, with a flash. You've got close-ups of the, the guys in the RV watching, and it's just a very, very impactful moment. And then my number one just in almost every sense, Dennis Leary is a treasure in general. Like I say, I really like that gentleman. I think that he is a good guy and does a lot of great work in the community. But here he is just on fire with his comic timing, with his energy, with this uh, sharp comic abrasiveness that he has. And uh, it's a perfect fit for an early 90s type of villain. And uh, in, in my book, he he belongs alongside Rickman as uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Like, I think that Leary is that good here. He's very, very hot out with a spoon. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And I have a, a number of lines, which like, like I say, a lot of this has got to be improv type of stuff. So after the RV explodes, that shit looks like the Hindenburg. That's funny. That is very it was funny. Hydrogen powered. It was you know it goes ahead of yeah. time. <laughs> and this great moment where there's this uh, the, the kid on the swing set and uh, he, he's doing the negotiation with the the other leader. And we talked about that scene. Great moment. He says, "Go ask Webster which room they went in." And that is a very funny line. <laughs> So anyway, he was just on on fire, and uh, yeah, we also mentioned the scene where he's drowning his henchman, and he's talking about his roommate in the joint. I think it was, and he says, "I hate people who complain, 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 yap, yap, yap." And it's just it's just a very very arresting moment. He is uh, very powerfully commanding the screen, and he's just <laughs> makes me want to go see the movie The Ref, which I never saw, oh. which was a year or two after. And I think he's the villain in that. So uh, yeah, I'd like to revisit some of Larry's stuff now. Reminded scene, how awesome he is in that scene. I'm always kind of just think I'm looking at the hand, henchman who goes, who just sits there, is just thinking, just, just like he doesn't want to interrupt. <laughs> Excuse like, me, boss. Excuse me, boss. <laughs> just like, can you? Yeah. Like, okay, fine. Just keep doing it. Like he's dead already. Thanks. Yeah. 
It's just like he doesn't really want to intrude. <laughs> yeah, the so one thing right. about Leary's performance in this is it's just like it's so him. It's not derivative of anything else. You mm. can't look at like you know New Jack City or Surviving the Game or or something else that may have came out around that time and say, well, he's he's doing this or he's doing that. He is doing him his own shtick, you know, his own yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's 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 a very that's a cool which is probably which is probably a limitation for for sure, right? But uh, but anyway, he's absolutely owns I mean, it. For, you mean for audiences, because they, they can't latch on to this being like, oh, so you're you know. I I think it's a limitation for for him. I think it's a limitation for uh, Dennis Leary's career because mm-hmm. he'll quickly be labeled that that's his shtick, which it sort of is, right? So. Uh, I can I can appreciate that comment and how that may have been limiting. Although, then it turns into sort of more creative uses for his talents, and he ends up in as a voice in Ice Age mm-hmm. that series, and then Rescue Me, and you know it goes back and forth to comedy tours. So, right. Um, are you? Oh, is that all three already? That's it. Larry's a treasure. Okay. I've got. Well, you mentioned the sort of the cinematography, so I'm not going to mention this as an honorable mention, as you know the blues and the and the oranges. But I wanted to kind of just quickly remind us of the multiple split diopter shots, which are just, are just great. Mm-hmm. So many cool. Yeah. There's there's one that really cool when you see uh, Dennis Leary smile in yeah. one corner of the frame and just stuff happening in the other. It's just great. Um, but then actual threes will be okay. The okay, the fun moment, the all aboard moment when he's just like, I'm the I'm the bus driver here, and he's like, all aboard. This is not what bus drivers say. This is a conductor line and just sit down and shut up. Oh, that's more like it. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great line. I don't know. And by the way, on, on the sort of Hindenburg RV situation, I just realized, do you know how many, how many bottles of booze they had in there? <laughs> yeah, they were, they were already like stopped at the, at, when they were picking up the, the guy they thought they hit and Piven keeps pulling out bottles and he's like drinking out of them. And then he, and then he puts this big trash bag together to like just toss it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay so so there's that another one um when emilio okay that's end end of the film so he, he has this moment of like ah grab me and then he eventually just dennis Leary just drops dead down the sort of set of stairs and breaks his neck or whatever but there's this moment when he when emilio estevez is walking down the steps and then the camera is just way down on the ground and just comes into on on Dennis Leary's face and this is when you normally expect for the villain to come back to life and for this one last sort of one last hurrah but he doesn't and this is such a cool moment because the suspense was like the butt cheeks uh clench situation I had been going on then it was amazing I'm just thinking this is a great scene because he he knows he's going to come back to life Dennis Leary probably knows he's, he's going to come back to life, but he doesn't. It's great. It's such a great scene. And the best, the rooftop confrontation with Jeremy Piven and then the turn that Dennis Leary has and he just drops him drops him off the ground. All together with the sort of the, the ring toss at the end. It's su- such a powerful set of moments. It's such a great scene. I love this. I love this film. It's a great film. Now, let's just throw some mud on this movie. <laughs> it's a bottom three moments, guys. Jackson, go for it. Okay, so uh, my bottom three, like like I said, I really enjoyed this. So it was a little bit more challenging to to figure out what what I would want to um, mention here. But uh, one was at the very end after they are 
wheeling Cuba Gooding Jr. and his 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 uh, bullet wound out of the uh, swap meet, and he's on the stretcher, and Emilio Estevez is talking to him, and then the the cop comes up to Emilio Estevez and says, um, you know, we found something, and he gives him his wallet, and then he says, he's a he got a beautiful family there, and it would just felt like such an intentional line, but it was like, what are, what were we saying with that, like, like. Amelia knows that he, you know, he's got these loved ones that this is what he was fighting for this whole night. Uh, this is what he lives for. So why does the cop need to remind him of that? That was one thing that was just kind of like a small little nitpick. I know officer. I know. <laughs> he's like, I've been trying there. to get home to them all night. <laughs> I have to explain myself to the missus as well. It's just going to be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So that was one, um, Obviously, I, I felt like they could have paid off a little bit more on um, on Frank or Emilio's uh, backstory of being like a, you know, a hard ass. Um, that was sort of like my number two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, uh, the scene where the guys are hiding out in the building after they've left the sewer and and John saying that he's not th- sure if he's going to make it through the night. That's Stephen Dorff's character. And then Emilio is just affirming him that felt like sort of just like a obligatory, you know, scene of like, this is how I'm feeling. Affirm me. <laughs> this, is, um, this is one of those five minute scenes that you could shave off and then you know, make a 90 minute masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I thought they could have done that down in the sewer or, you know, the, it was funny. The line, they could have replaced Cuba Gooding Jr.'s whole, like, um, uh, I could always, I, I always thought about seeing myself in combat. Like, that line down there, they could have maybe swapped that moment out, mm-hmm. but ultimately, um, you know, I mean, they yeah, have a moment in the sewers already. Like when he, when he actually wastes a guy for the first time, he actually kills a guy. Like, what, what did it feel like? And just this, they had an opportunity to kind of just, you know, okay, pack this yeah. in there right now and then just move on. Just yeah. go, so go and catch the bus. If anything, that was that would be like my third bottom moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, Randy, um, pet peeve. But I'll say it anyway, even though thematically you guys can probably talk me down, but I'll say it anyway, when they're driving around in the RV and Piven's driving, the inside lights are always on. I know when I drive at night and my kids have the lights on because they they want to read. No, turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) And I think thematically, yes, the the lights are on because they're in their own bubble and it prevents them from seeing the world around them. Uh, I, I think that I can talk myself out of it. But however, that bothered me that he had the lights on while he was driving that thing, especially when the, the, the street lights were less plentiful and it was darker and and he needed to see more. But no, he had the, the stupid dome lights on. And notice the moment, the, or sorry, notice the moment where the lights go off is in the crash. So, so there yeah. was like this decided moment that, okay, the lights are going off because now we're getting serious. And so that was... Yeah. You could imagine yeah. that this is Stephen Hopkins' sort of directorial decision. Keep the lights on. This is going to make sense, right? But then eventually it kind of looks like they're driving through these sort of desolate wasteland sort of like neighborhood slums. And then they're, they're like a Christmas tree. It's like, look at these four idiots drinking <laughs> in a camper van. <laughs> yeah. the outside. Agreed. And I, I, yeah, I so anyway. It's my connection to my uh, family wanting the lights in the the back seat on while I'm driving. Uh, but yes, I, I totally agree that <laughs> there's a purpose for it. Uh, anyway, number three, why is it 
all sewers in Hollywood movies have water slides. I don't really think that's a thing. And not a, <laughs> not a single uh, fatberg. <laughs> yeah, so, could you imagine oh, yeah. going down the slide and just plop? There's a clog of tampons. <laughs> Fat. Yeah, they really, they really did the most to create this kind of like underground, you know, water park. <laughs> Like, yeah. I can't believe that, you know, Ninja Turtles weren't there either. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So what else have I got of us? Because usually okay, there's, like, there's a manhole and there's just, that's, there's just a pipe. <laughs> it's just, that's what it is. Anyway, continue. Yeah. I think if I were ever to go into a municipal sewer, I'm going to be very, very disappointed by what I find <laughs> because this Hollywood nice. film... <laughs> This is we, not what Judgment Night promised me. No, it's just right. the 80s and, and 90s films. Like 80s and 90s films, I think, have been lying to us. So, Where's uh, the pane of glass that I have to drive through every now and again? Flamethrowers. Quicksand. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we still haven't done a quicksand episode, but anyway, we'll we'll get there. <laughs> water uh, okay. Underground water <laughs> And the water is excessively clean either. So it's just... Uh, there's, yeah, there's that Unreal. too. It's the 90s. <laughs> We're on the roof with our heroes. They're trying to escape. They're trying to get off of this building. There's an escape route that other residents have the residents have told them about. They find it. It's this ladder. They're going to try to get across. They're trying not to get detected along the way because there are killers looking for them. But they're making so much goddamn noise. It's yeah, crazy. Come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're they're full like, volume conversations. I can hear yeah, so. I can hear them from here. Let's go. Let's go, guys. <laughs> and there's they the the villains finally make their way to the roof and they're on like this this uh top hump on the roof. So you would think there would be an extra motive to stay quiet, but no, Piven is yelling. No, I've got them where I want them. (laughs) What are you going to do? I'm going to negotiate with them. (laughs) So so anyway, someone had to confront them because, you know, they weren't going to sneak off at that rate. But anyway, my my number one bad moment or my my worst moment in Judgment Night uh, was a couple periodically Cuba Gooding Jr. falls victim to vicious over wide-eyed acting and that's like why he got end. his oscar come on yeah tell me the money <laughs> it served it served him well a little later on but that's Cuba. what the academy likes settle give him a break. settle down just you know your eyes don't have to bulge that much for that line that's and what he just looks like i mean you're just slagging off a guy he just has put no i don't him. think so because then he's also he's he's doing that that uh hump my friend dance at the opening and she's just got a couple of these bad overacting moments that i could have done without do you think is this something that he just was allowed to do on his own or was it just was it one of those like hopkins like fine let him do it or or was it just like you know can you do I one of those he things was making i think he was making choices tied to the character being sort of the extrovert and being like the most you know outside himself character i I'd like Other to be on the yeah. wall and, and during a conversation between him and the director when he was explaining, this is my take on the character. 
This is, this is how I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah, I think Hopkins is is uh, dealing with his cast, and a lot of them are saying, uh, we should just improv and just let the, let the camera keep rolling, and we'll see what we come up with. And I think Piven and Cuba Gooding Jr. in particular are just continuing to do this improv, sounding off one another, and it's not always working. I, I think that that may, that attitude may have come because they're doing that throughout with Leary, but Leary's coming. That's, that's his background, this, you know, working off a crowd and improv and, you know, going in the moment and, and like, that's his whole background. But I don't think Cuba Gooding Jr. and uh, Jeremy Piven are uh, as good at it. And I think there's a few moments where that it feels like that's what they're doing, especially in the RV. They don't need that. Cuba Gooding Jr. just totally goes off a couple of times <laughs> way overboard in my view. Okay. Is that my turn now? Go for it. Yeah. Honor, okay. Honorable mention. <laughs> to, um, when they hit a guy, I mean, and they, they have to turn to this guy and just, oh, come on. You know, I think it's right. Come on, right. Do this. And, you know, and then he realizes that he needs to call 911 and he calls 911. He takes a big glug of vodka. And that's not the smartest thing to do if you're going to call the cops for, for someone that you just ran over. Especially that you're the driver. Oh, now I'm under the influence as well. Thanks. <laughs> and then, yeah. So, so that's tied with. I can't. I can't get over this. In the sewer, when they waste a guy and they go like, "Well, Cuba Gooding Jr. has this moment like, oh, don't you believe him?" And, and Stephen Dorff and, and and Emilio go like, "Fine, let, let's go upstairs." And the whole, this whole sort of structure is awash with light. This, this massive sort of structure, this massive tunnel, just this, I don't know, silo going all the way up and they climb these stairs. It's like a mines of Moria. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the Goonies. <laughs> yeah, and then what did, what then, and cut to exiting through a very tiny manhole. Like, where is this light coming from? Is there artificial lighting in this sort of structure? Is this? But it kind of looks like this is big enough to host the bubble rug and then just. <laughs> <laughs> just, just get up this sort of small manhole. Can't get over this. But okay, okay, okay. One, when they miss the bus, it's not they're missing the bus. I get it, and it's even better when with Randy's take. It's fantastic. However, they they are in a building, so they're hiding within a structure on the first floor. So they're upper floor, <laughs> um, and they see this bus pulling up to the to the bus stop. And it's like, oh, there's the bus. Let's go. So they have to run downstairs and catch it. How long did this bus stay at the bus stop? Like it's empty. So normally, normally, if 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 I had to go and catch the late bus, the buses they if they see there's there's no one on board, there's no one waiting at the bus stop, I'll just go fucking plow through, not even stopping. <laughs> Unrealistic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another one. Uh, oh yeah, the, the folly on the boxing match. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And I had forgotten about that one. <laughs> and the, the, and the whole idea of taking camper van to a boxing match is ridiculous. But okay, but then I, I have, I'll I'll be controversial in here because I really, really, really do not like the sort of okay. Well, the, when they execute the guy, I like the fact that he's just just it's kind of comes out of nowhere. You see, just bam, and just falls falls backwards. But then you see it again, and you see it again, and then you hear it again, and then you hear it again. And you hear it once more <laughs> with feeling and just just slightly with like, it's like a 
you know, like a guitar delay effect that just eventually just kind of fades away. And then it feels like the sort of scene in Bad Boys. Like it kind of looks like something like Michael Bay would look like look at and just like, this is so cool. I'm going to put it in my movie two years from now. When you see like Tia Leone, like witnessing her friend gets, gets murdered by these guys. And it's again, it's just <clears throat> shot to the eye, shot to the gun. And then you see the, the muzzle flash, the, this woman falls out and you see this 10 times. And it's just, can we please, just once is more than enough. You don't even have to show it. Just show it on their faces so that they're just mortified by what's happened. I'll be fine with this. But there's just almost like it's overcompensating as though like the filmmakers were like, I'm not sure people will get it how important this is. Like, let's do it six times, boys. <laughs> this is the moment you need to remember. <laughs> it kind of feels like someone's just, there's, there's the director going like, focus. This is it, okay? This is this is this this is where shit hits the fan, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, this is where the shit hits the fan," because you see this guy die six times. It's <laughs> I think that's a style thing that comes out of the '90s. I associate it a lot with um, the show that I love, Homicide: Life in the Streets, because they'll do cut, 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 like three little cuts. They'll do that periodically, and uh, it feels like this stylish little gimmick that uh, different filmmakers yeah. would use at the time. You know what? I will say this. In a film that costs $20 million to make, where the only special effect that they had to splurge on for this was a squib, probably, and maybe a bag of ketchup somewhere. But I could see... Remember when we were... I, I think I did it only with Nicola. When we were talking about Red Dawn, there's this, there are these explosions that they show. And like you can clearly see there's the same explosion shown three <laughs> times because that's the only time that they filmed it. So like, I'm going to... Go to hell, we're going to milk this, okay? We're milking this. Like I spent $500,000 on this scene. We're going to show it three times, okay? <laughs> so, but this is like, it's not like an explosion I'm seeing from six different angles. Like, it's just a guy. I mean, it's a thematic. Thing. It's like, oh, everyone's... Because you have to show it at least... Well, you should have to show it once because you need to show it. Then you show it second time for other effect. And then you have to show it four more times because there's four characters you need to do a close up on as they're just mortified by this whole situation. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It just took me out. I, I know you guys love these things and you're like, this is the best of it, but like, I couldn't. <laughs> but I, 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 it is kind of funny to look at what each of them do in their reaction shot. Cause like, like you get to Piven and he's looking and then he just kind of looks down like, like he's like, he's, he's embarrassed or ashamed. Like this was my fault. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then each of them have their own looks. Like you just, I don't know. At some point it is, you can, you can throw in like, like in a, in a Zucker, Zucker Abraham's par parody of this film, like there will be a fifth guy with a, one hand on his dick. And it's just, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a fetish it, it's just no it's just i don't know it's a bit too far for me it's just it's, it's literally just michael bay type of like this is like an early 90s music video sort of situation it's like god damn it we spent all this money on the squib i'm gonna milk this squib <laughs> <laughs> anyway i think it's i think we're done we've done this boys so um I don't know where you can see this. I think it's it's available to be rented or purchased, um, you know, for money. But I'm not sure it's a, Judgment Night is available to be streamed anywhere as part of any sort of subscription packages. 
uh, but it is available on physical media, which I strongly suggest you you do because this is a this is a movie from a different era, and physical media is going the way of the dodo. So you might as well just get yourself a Blu-ray and watch it the way God intended. <sighs> anyway. I'll add to that. I think that if you're gonna get this, get the physical copy of Predator Two and do a double feature. Do a do a that, yes. double feature. I'm a massive apologist for Predator 2 and I'm always happy. Uh, recently, Carson, our, our good buddy from Clapper, uh, he discovered that Predator 2, I mean, he always has a hot take associated with this because he thinks it's better than one. He's allowed to make mistakes. But <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I, I love Predator 2 so much and I'm always happy when I see people go like, yeah, this is great. Like, yeah, I, I was there. In, I was there in 95 or so whenever I watched this. <laughs> And then, and I was probably way too young to be watching this because I was like eleven or twelve, and this film's gruesome. <laughs> but yeah, but it did what a sequel needs to do. You know, it took the lore of the original and and created this whole new landscape. And and Hopkins just, you know, Hopkins took a a, a role of stepping into a franchise, and and in my opinion, did it justice. I mean, he th- this is one of those sequels when you it's a rare example of <laughs> taking a sequel in a completely different direction that works very well. Like it's like you have alien and you have aliens, right? That are two distinct sort of things, two dif- distinct beasts. that are not not, not trying to kind of just uh, the the sequel is not trying to ape the uh, original too much. It's just phenomenal. And then the biggest takeaway always for me was the pattern of uh, Bill Paxton's sweat stains. Always, <laughs> <laughs> it's just this man sweats like an absolute hog. This is great. <laughs> It's just like, how do we show that the DLA is super hot? It's just Bill Paxton's always sticky. <laughs> uh, anyway, so go ahead and watch Just Dread Night. It's great. Um, and then meanwhile, we might as well close the episode. So how about we just go through our socials? So, Jackson, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter, at Jackson Boren, J-A-C-K-S-O-N-B-O-R-E-N. And that is uh, that's where I'm at most of the time, you know, sharing uh, my opinions or you know, views about movies. I like to like to connect with others like yourselves. And uh, yeah, awesome, awesome. And I'm yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this is not the last time we're we're in this room because <laughs> there's there's gonna there, yeah, there's plenty of cool films from the nineties to kind of dig into. No, anyway, awesome, uh, awesome, Likewise. awesome to have you here, Randy. Where can we find you as well? You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find me on Twitter at Randy Burrows. And every once in a while, I will write something that you can find on clapperltd.co.uk. Awesome. And you can find me, talk about film on Twitter, Jakub Flash on Letterboxd, and you can find me on flashonfilm.com where I when I have time, I write something. I recently wrote a review of Top Gun Maverick, and I was super happy with myself that I found enough time to actually write something. That was great. And sometimes, <clears throat> very rarely recently, on Clapper as well. And also remember, follow the show at Uncut Gems Pod everywhere, which is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Which TikTok is like the most fun <laughs> to be on. To, so if you if you found us through TikTok, you know, hi. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is where we get the most traction. Like this is where we went viral with an Alfred Molina reel that kind of got taken down for sexual content. <laughs> that, was good. that was a great day. Uh, 
anyway, so fi find us there on social media. You can also, if you like what we're, what we're doing, remember you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod to get some extra podcasts about some cool movies that are maybe a little bit less off the beaten track, some classics in there. So you, you get our bonus times where we tie in a classic films to something that we do. So this month we were tying in John Carpenter's The Thing to our sort of series about shapeshifter movies and then and body snatcher movies and then we have our mini retrospective about spaghetti westerns by by the other sergio scored by uh, <clears throat> ennio morricone and then there's always our ongoing david lynch marathon where we're going one by one by every single thing david lynch directed and this month we're doing twin peaks at least the original run of season one and two also you can buy us a coffee coffee.com so ko dash fi.com slash pod is the place you want to go if you want to support us with a one-off donation and if you don't feel like spending money because you know like i know times are tough you can always leave us a review i don't know apple podcasts spotify wherever you can you can put a star you, where you listen to podcasts and you can actually leave a review or a rating you know it will help us a lot get discovered and you know if we find another great soul like jackson here that we can connect with and then establish this sort of like the you know there the, there is there is a world of people who love movies and they're you know so so excited about stuff from the nineties like we are it's great so you know get and also get in touch you can always get in touch you know gmail.com or uncutgemspodcast.com slash contact which is uh, by the way uncutgemspodcast.com is the HQ so we can find all their episodes and everything else that we do kind of just collated in there as well I think that's it I think I've got all my all all this spiel so. Be sure to tune in next week because what we're doing now. Oh, yeah, I know what we're doing because we're, we're doing, we're starting a, a bit of a series yeah. again. So we're going to be launching. I might as well just go for it. Go for it. And we're launching a bit of a series. So we're going to spend four episodes talking about animal attack films. <laughs> so I think we're starting with a double bill of Anaconda from 1997 and uh, a TV movie made for sci-fi Lake Placid versus Anaconda. It's going to be great because it's, it's trash. <laughs> but yeah, we're, yeah, there's going to be some cool movies going on. And then I'm going to put a little teaser out there. But I think while once we start this, I think I might as well just put more, more, um, more details on this. So on the Patreon, as a bonus tie-in, we're going to do... Uh, because we're, we're talking about animal attack films and then there's a granddaddy of animal attack films that kind of not it's not really an animal attack film but it's kind of kind of close in spirit and then i don't know ties ties in a little bit a, a little bit is the um the kaiju sort of situation so we're going to be talking about the original godzilla so it's gonna be great and then there's gonna be retrospect a retrospective coming up with films kind of related and related to the surf theme as well it's a variation on this I'm, I'm gonna put more we're, we're gonna share more details <clears throat> next week but for now i hope you have a fabulous day and we'll see you next week so bye bye